Bueno Fantasco Day here at yes. the Film Cafeteria. I'm Scott. And I am Brittany. And today we're talking about licorice pizza and all those other kids. Yes. Um, we're, we're doing predominantly licorice pizza, I think because of our excitement about talking about uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's most recent movie. Yeah, and how much we're like just hooked on Anything all his things. <laughs> <GTA>. Yeah. <laughs> um, but then we're also going to talk about a couple of other movies that are um, uh, also kind of coming-of-age-ish movies, uh, Repo Man and The Legend of Billie Jean. Uh, two movies that don't... I don't really see a lot of people talking about them, mm -hmm. but they're two movies that are favorites of ours that end up on TV for us, like, a lot. Yes. And, uh, yeah. So and like always, we're bringing you a little bit of old with a little bit of new. Absolutely. And in this case, um, a lot of uh, kind of interesting melancholy nostalgia, which is something that I kind of like delving into in reference to like Paul Thomas Anderson and his work. Yes. So I'm sure we'll also kind of touch on a couple of other coming of age films here and there. But um, yeah, let's get started. Bueno. <laughs> Okay, today we're talking about Licorice Pizza, the 2021 film by Paul Thomas Anderson, and yes. it was written and directed by him. Yep. So this is fun and, and interesting, <laughs> which I'm always excited to kind of talk about his movies. I don't know. Yeah. He's one of my favorite directors. Yeah, same here. I mean, I, I think for most people that really love movies in... Uh, um, kind of more than just on like a surface kind of level of just liking something that is entertaining. Yeah. I think he's just one of those, he, ever since there will be blood, he's just kind of become that really, really important American director Yeah, for us. And, and he's also interesting and completely different than a lot of other historically uh, American directors and that he does write his own scripts Yeah, and he's never had a co-writer in any kind of a traditional way. I mean, I know he talked about Phantom Thread as being developed with Daniel Day-Lewis and I know he's, you know, I mean, he's of course adapted two books. There will be blood being one of them from oil by, uh, Upton Sinclair. And, um, one of my favorites inherent vice movie. I didn't initially like all that much. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, adapted from one of my favorite writers, Thomas Pinchon. And it, it is interesting that he, he has become just kind of such a staple, I think, for so many people that just adore cinema. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was a really, like, great coming-of-age story. It was. I mean, and it goes back and it follows children, what things were like in the 70s. Yeah. You know, so that was a really fun kind of like throwback or tape back. Yeah. Um, he really write amazing time period yeah, films. Yeah, period films. Yeah, yeah, it's it's those period films are so amazing. Um so yeah, I'm excited. I was excited about this one. Me too. We were so excited when it came out and it was released because yeah. we seen it pretty much when it We saw it on opening night. Yeah. And then we saw it um so we saw a special screening. Which, by the way, we, you know, should tell people 
where we saw it at. We saw it at the Plaza in Atlanta, mm-hmm. and it was um, it was great. It, they had like a little curated playlist from Paul Thomas Anderson that came in to all those special screenings. Yeah, um, that played before the movie. It was wild because it was one of the. It was probably like the third movie, third or fourth movie we saw in a theater since the pandemic. Because I think we had seen like Lamb and titan and maybe one or two other things mm-hmm. and then we saw that one and that was like the first time we were in a theater that was completely packed they were like we're not there are no trailers before this movie yeah. we're not starting it up until everybody is seated See, it yes. was a sold out show it was a really 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 cool way to see that movie on on kind of an opening night and we saw it i think two other times in the theater yes we we went back. Uh, one of which on Christmas Day, mm-hmm. we went and saw it. Yep. Um, and it was it, it was, I think the movie he's made since There Will Be Blood that was the only one that I liked the first time that I saw it. Okay. Okay. What about the master? I didn't really Me know either. what the That's hell what's... he was on about with the master. The master Me is either. now my favorite. It's of his now films. one of my favorites. But when I first saw it, I was like, "What?" You remember we had to go back and kind of watch that twice. We saw that. I I think we both collectively did, but that I I think like just. I think I saw that movie about like four or five times. You in the did theater. by yourself, but I went back at least twice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And. It was just one of those things where it was like the first time that we watched it, I was like, I don't know what the hell he's on about with this one. <laughs> I, I don't wait. And especially because it was, it, um, you know, they were, he was already talking about doing the master right after there will be blood. It was like about a year later that the script had leaked online and uh-huh. people kind of knew what we had coming up for us. But like, still it was really shrouded in mystery. There was like a period. So He's also the only director, I think, outside of, to a degree, Martin Scorsese, where I actually follow what's happening with the production as it's being filmed. Mm -hmm. And I remember with, like, The Master, there was a lot of conversations. It was going to be James Franco in the Freddie Quell role, and who was originally, I think, in the script named Freddie Sutton. Um, And then it was going to be Jeremy Renner, and then it was Joaquin Phoenix, and this was right after we all thought that Joaquin Phoenix went crazy. Yeah. <laughs> so it was kind of like, I don't really know what he's doing. And then we actually saw it and I was like, okay, so it's about Dianetics, but, and kind of the foundings of Scientology, but then Philip Seymour Hoffman is for some reason doing a really funny impersonation of Orson Welles. <laughs> I, I just, I didn't get it. And then, and then it was like two or three screenings later where I was like, this is a masterpiece. Yeah. This is unbelievable. Yeah. It was a similar reaction with Inherent Vice, and in that uh, when I saw it, I, I know Pinchon's work pretty well, so hearing people talk in Pinchon's dialogue, and that script is literally just, he opened up the book and just typed the dialogue. The first time that I saw it, I was like, I don't, the cadences weren't registering with me. I didn't really think that he did a very good job the first time I saw it. And then rewatching, I, I thought it was very funny. Yeah. Um, in particular, of course, Josh Brolin <laughs> in the movie as as with banana, <laughs> with, the the banana with the chocolate banana, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and you know his his whole thing about going to the restaurant for respect because he doesn't get it from his mother <laughs> and all of this other stuff. You know, 
it was it was definitely a movie that um I thought was very funny. I liked uh certain odd callbacks in the movie to some of his earlier stuff, the seventies milieu to Boogie Nights, but also there was another weird little callback to Boogie Nights and the um uh porn actress Belladonna plays a small role in there. Mm-hmm. Like so it was it was this weird little movie that I knew the material walking into it and hearing people say Penchon's dialogue, I was like, this doesn't sound the way I imagine it. Mm-hmm. So it just threw me off. And then two or three viewings and it was another thing where I was like, oh, wow, this is this is incredible. Oh, no, this may sound a little corny, but it was groovy, man. Yeah, it was groovy. It was very groovy, you know? <laughs> I liked it. I liked it from the first time I saw it, actually. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think I was, of of our kind of group that all saw it, I was the only one that walked out of it with reservations the first time that mm-hmm. I saw it. Because kind of everybody around us really liked it the first time out. And I was the only one that was like, nah. <laughs> it's just, it's weird hearing Penchon's words spoken. It just, it didn't click. And then, again, it was like two, three times later, I was like, no, 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 this is actually, he actually did it right. I just had my own kind of vision of how that should sound and then with phantom thread i we went and saw that one and i was like this is just a comedy <laughs> yeah. and it was really good but like i i just it kind of felt like a movie i wouldn't really revisit as much as i ended up revisiting yeah i mean that one i did it took me three or four times watching it to really fall into step with it and kind of like it a little bit it's yeah. a few yeah but after a while i actually really enjoyed it mostly probably because of the fashion like yeah the lace yeah kind of behind <laughs> that story of how the dresses were made and yeah. things like that i actually was very interested in that part so yeah yeah and it was like with all of his films it was incredible performances yeah always but with this one this was a real surprise from him mm-hmm. because i know on when you know i was paying attention to some of the stuff that was coming up with him when Inherent Vice, I mean, when uh, Phantom Thread came out, the talk was that his next movie was going to be with Tiffany Haddish. Mm. That was kind of the, the general conversation. There's still a lot of conversation that he's working on potentially a movie about jazz clubs in Los Angeles in the 1940s. And that that was probably what we were going to get next. And then instead, <laughs> we get this ode to American graffiti. And even when this movie was first being talked about, it seemed like it was going to be a lot darker than what it actually is. Yeah. It, the I remember the first things that I was hearing about it was that it was going to be about a young kid actor and his relationship with an older director. Yeah. And of course, then... And, you know, that immediately conjures this vision of, like, he's going back to Boogie Nights territory. He's in the valley again. Mm-hmm. It's 1970. He's going back to, or, you know, the 1970s. And because uh, at the time, we didn't really actually have a period when it was going to take place outside of the 1970s. And that it was going to be a movie that was probably going to be very, very dark. And then we actually saw it, and it was his most likable movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I really, I, I did. I enjoyed the experience, even in the movie, as well as when I watch it outside of the theater. Yeah. It feels like I learn something new. Like every yeah. time I watch it, I see something different and I learn something new about it. So that's one of the parts I do enjoy about watching a lot of 
PTA's films. Yeah. Is that I always find something new or learn yeah. something new every time I go back and watch, rewatch it. So yeah. that's always fun. He he leaves little, you know, takes you on a little treasure hunt for those types of things. She so does. I kind of really enjoy that. Um, and then we have the cast. Yes. Um, some of the main cast are um, Alana Hain, which yeah. is she is one third of the group. Yeah. That she has with her sisters, who also were in the movies as her sisters. Yeah. <laughs> Along with her real parents. Yeah, with her real parents. <laughs> so that was really, like, they kept it all in the family. Yeah. <laughs> then we have Cooper Hoffman. Yeah. Who is the son of Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yep. Um, the late and great, you know. Um, also, and that was, like, his film debut. It was both of theirs. Oh, it was yeah. Alana's as well. Yeah, she had done all the music videos with Paul, but... That was it. Yeah, that was it. And I love I love a lot of the Yeah. The the music videos that he actually directs. So mm-hmm. one of my favorite Hame songs is the Right Now. I I love that one. Yeah. Um then we have the great Sean Penn, of course. Always yes. wild and crazy. You could kind of see him <laughs> show up in films and do this little cameo yeah. thing. And he was just wild. So was Tom Waits. <laughs> Tom Waits is Rex Blau. It was unbelievable. Yes. And Bradley Cooper. What can we say about Bradley Cooper? It, it's also really, really funny that we have the legend of Billy Jean on here because he plays John Peters. Uh-huh. And John Peters, of course, produced, produced Legend yes. of Billy Jean. So that was a weird little connection right there. It was. <laughs> but like he was he was definitely one of those things that when he comes up in the movie, it's a a like an unexpected jolt after every person that cycled through yeah. up to that point has been a jolt. He was like the most unexpected one. He really was. <laughs> he could take you back, and now you're just like, "What? Yeah, Bradley? <laughs> Is that you?" <laughs> okay, then we have Benny Safdie. Yeah, he is a filmmaker and yeah. director and writer with his mm-hmm. brother Josh. Yeah, and they did um, Good Times. Yep, as well as Uncut Gems. Yeah. So those were some really great. Yeah, films that came out in the last few years that I really enjoy watching. They're great. Like, Absolutely. Yeah. Their first movie um, called Daddy Long Legs actually just came out on the Criterion Collection. Okay. And that that was a, a movie that uh, they did roughly about their dad. Yeah. That stars Ronald Bronstein, mm-hmm. who's their co-writer. Yeah. Playing a version of their dad. It's a yeah. really cool movie. Okay, awesome. And the music is done by Johnny Greenwood. Johnny Greenwood. It's Radiohead, man. Like, <laughs> and his, you know, it started with There Will Be Blood. Their yeah. collaboration has been unbelievable. Yes, he's actually been a composer on, like, the last five of his films. Yeah. So I, I found that pretty interesting. Yeah. As well as he used the same casting director. Yep. She's been on, like, every last one of them except the first one. Yeah. Um, he It's the same with his producer. Daniel Lupi, as well as um, Joanne Seller. She's also been a producer for eight of his films, while Daniel Lupi has been a producer for all nine. Yeah. yeah. So I find that pretty cool. And then, let's not forget, yeah. Mark Bridges, his yeah. costume designer. Yeah. I think he's the most consistent. Yeah, he's been on all nine films. Yeah. Yeah. It, and Bridges is incredible. There, he's, he's like one... So, like, the thing that I am always sometimes the least interested in when it comes to movies is costume design. I generally speaking, don't 
really pay too much attention to it or really care what people are wearing. Yeah. <laughs> it only bothers me when people are just wearing things that blatantly don't fit. Yeah. You know, but yeah. like past that, I never really pay any attention to it, nor do I really ever care. But like, you can tell that him and he's one of the most important collaborators to Paul. Yeah. And that's a very fascinating thing. I really wonder about how that working relationship is. Yeah. And when the movie is, when a film is so specific yeah. for the period that you're, you're, you're trying to like get people to see or, you yeah. know, you're in your vision of it. That is so important. Yeah. So it definitely matters mm-hmm. like how it's displayed. It's definitely, it definitely matters. Yeah. Um, so that's what I thought would be interesting to bring up Mark Bridges. Absolutely. Yeah. And he, he's, I mean, obviously the movie that he got where he got to shine the most was Phantom Thread. Yeah. It's all about clothes. It's all about fashion <laughs> and design. But it was, it was interesting watching this and I'm thinking about it in the context of the two other 70s movies that he's made, Boogie Nights and, and uh, Inherent Vice, and thinking about the fact that, you know, in all three of those movies, the the clothing and the setup of how everybody is dressed and the design of their wardrobe and everything is so different. It's yeah. so incredibly different. Yeah. And it doesn't feel recycled. Whereas I think with other filmmakers, that could sometimes become the case. I can't really think of any examples off the top of my head, but mm-hmm. I think for other filmmakers, that could sometimes end up becoming the case, that you would recycle certain elements of wardrobe from one, you know, film that you make within a period to another but yet like with them they don't ever seem to do that it seems like with each film they kind of come up with a whole new color palette a whole new design and a whole new kind of way into the same the same exact areas and the same exact time period but they give you a whole new view of it yeah it feels totally different so that's why i really enjoy it yeah yeah and uh i guess it's also interesting this is the second movie that P.T. Anderson has officially photographed himself as director of photography. Yeah. The yeah. first, of course, being Phantom Thread. And there are rumors and stories that this started around There Will Be Blood with his longtime collaborator Robert Ellswit, that they didn't really get along on that movie, that he wouldn't come back from the master. And of course, Mihai Malamara Jr., who was a photographer for Francis Ford Coppola, came in and did that movie and had some, it seemed like some negative experience working with Paul just from the standpoint of him being a very uh, hands-on, you know, kind of collaborator with the cinematography, which I think became a little point of contention with them. The Robert Ellswick came back from inherent for inherent vice, but inherent vice is weird in that it looks exactly like the master and there will be blood and now Phantom Thread and Licorice Pizza, which he photographed himself. So uh-huh. that it, it's very interesting that it feels like he's been working toward being his own cinematographer for a really, really long time. Yeah, I mean, if that's something he wants to do, you know. Yeah, and it's he he's incredible at it. Yeah, I, I he's love great. it. I I absolutely love it. Yeah. So let's get into yeah the movie. Yeah. So what did you what did you think, Scott? So, with this one, this is one of those ones where from beginning to end, this movie is just like, it's, I mean, the title is perfect. (laughs) It's licorice pizza. It's like the 
best thing that you could ever consume. I mean, there's just something about it that is so sweet and so perfect and just like so kind of wonderfully done. I mean, one of the things I think is the most interesting is the way that he allows the movie to just kind of float. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he really does just kind of, but at the same time, you can kind of tell from the dialogue that it's a very structured film. Yeah. Like he, there was a lot of care and attention put into the script, which I don't think was necessarily the case for his previous like four movies. Mm-hmm. I think that he got into a habit of kind of underwriting a lot and kind of finding it as they were going. But with this one, it really felt like he sat down and wanted to do something very calculated, very exacting. And I think he did it. But it's funny to me that in him being so calculating and exacting, it is such a, in a positive way, meandering film. I mean, it is a hangout movie in the best way, like in the way that Dazed and Confused is. Or another movie that I know is a huge inspiration on this one, which is American Graffiti. Yeah. And... This one kind of definitely felt like that. But it's also, um, when we rewatched it for this, the thing that I kind of walked away with was I was like, this is some, this is, I think, some of the best dialogue he's ever written. Yeah. You know, we start with the scene of Gary. First of all, like, I love that the movie opens with a literal bang. Yeah. With a cherry bomb going off in the toilet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then it goes into, um, you know, Gary and Alana meeting as he's waiting to have his picture taken and the banter between the two of them is like a screwball comedy. It's, it's like a Howard Hawks movie and they're just kind of going back and forth in this really, really wonderful way. And, and it just kind of pulls you into the movie exactly right. Like it was just the perfect way to pull you in. And yeah, exactly. And also it does set you up for how you think they're coming, yeah. you know, like how it's going to, finally come up with like all the things that they they're going to get in together like yeah. the, their back and forth banter yeah. just sets you up for the entire movie of their back and forth coming yeah. going back and forth banter it so, does all the way down to like you know it's reading way too much into it but it's so perfect to me that in the very beginning he has the line where he says you say everything twice yeah. and she's kind of like what does this say everything twice i don't say everything twice you know, kind of thing. <laughs> and then you know later as the movie progresses she's kind of constantly backtracking on everything that she's saying and doing. You know, she steps out into one spot and then she comes right back to where she was before. And it is almost kind of like you see that repetition, her actions, and it's first personified in her dialogue. Yeah. She repeats everything she says when you first meet her. And then as you go along with her, you see her repeating her same actions over and over again. I like repetition in movies, so I thought that that was like such a cool detail. But again, I don't really think it was that calculated, but I think that it was just like one of those things where he may have subconsciously found something with the character in that moment that wound up informing the entire piece. Yeah, that was maybe a little like tick or something that she yeah. does. Um, and that was kind of an interesting take on it as well because it just could be the fact that she's in a pattern you know yeah. that that's what that really signifies for me is like maybe she's in a pattern yeah. that she's just so used to being in yeah and now meeting him and dealing with a lot of things that she goes through through the movie is starting to like take her out of it yeah it's stretching you know like how like 
you feel like you need to grow. So to me, it was just you starting off those little ticks are like still her coming of age kind of tick. Yeah. And then later she starts to grow a little bit. So maybe you don't see the repetition as much because yep. you can tell she's trying to grow. So it's, yeah. it's interesting. It's also uh, funny that there is a, a consistent wondering about her real age yeah <laughs> in the movie and when we rewatched it this last time i realized that um the way that she first introduces her age she says that she's 25 and the way that she introduces it the very first time it almost sounds like she is searching for the age just a little bit because she says it kind of like i'm 25 and like you almost hear it like she had to think about it for that moment. And as you're watching them go back and forth, you don't really feel like she's thinking about any of her dialogue until she gets asked about her age. And yeah. you know that that was probably a natural thing. And it comes up later where they're in the car, Bradley Cooper. And <laughs> yeah, says, there's a little flub. <laughs> How old are you? And she says, I'm 28. And he says, what? And she says, I'm 25. And it's a flub. And then it seems like there was actually a flub earlier in the movie too, when she first tells Gary her age, but it wasn't a flub in that she said it wrong, but you could actually hear her searching for it. Just yeah, a almost little like bit. A, a hesitation or, and it, it's an amazing detail to leave in there that it's like, even though this is somebody who's maybe just a little uncomfortable with lines and dialogue, because this is the first time they've ever done this, that he leaves in there as layering for this character of like, you know, is she kind of trying to stay 25 for as long as she possibly can? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, uh, and that's funny you bring that up because in the very beginning, mm -hmm. when Gary first asks her about her age, yeah. she's like, you're not supposed to do that. Yeah. You're not supposed to ask a, a woman about her age. That let me know already that that was a little contentious for her because yeah. maybe in a way she saw herself getting older. Yeah. But she still felt lost. Yeah. Which a lot of us all do in a yeah, way. Yeah. You know, we think we're 25 and we think we know everything. Yeah. And we start to learn that we know nothing. Yeah. We literally know nothing, even at 25. Yeah. And I think that actually played very beautifully into the film. I think so, too. And I, I love that aspect of, of their kind of dynamic that, you know, she there's a good possibility that she really is 28 and really just doesn't want to admit it <laughs> you know, there's a very good possibility of that and yeah. that she doesn't really want to admit it because she's kind of like i should be here by 28 but i'm i'm still where i was at 25 so almost like mentally she's like so i'm just gonna stay 25 until i'm where i'm really supposed to be <laughs> yeah and it, it's a it's a fascinating kind of character trait that i think was it, it's a testament to how he remodulates things based upon his actors. Yeah. And is able to use those things to create layers. Yeah, because that could be a real life scenario. Like mm -hmm. it may be something she was or has been experiencing in her real life. Yeah. Like when you look at your age and you go, I should be here. Yeah. But by what standard? Yeah. You see what I mean? Because we all, what standard are we going by? Yeah. So, so I, I always used to have to question that too. Like, I should be here by this age. Yeah. I should be here. 
And now I'm just like, forget it, man. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I'm making up my own rules. Yeah. And it's, it's one of the fascinating things that as she meets Gary, Gary is way ahead of where he should be at 16. Well, in certain in aspects. In certain aspects. In, it seems to... In an aspect of career, which becomes so important in your adult life. Yeah. He's way ahead of yeah. most adults. I mean, he's a hustler. He is. Like, <laughs> he was a natural born hustler. Like, that's he what is. I saw when he was so, yeah, I mean, he was about his money. He, yeah. was, <laughs> he yeah. was on his business game. So, like, I feel like for that, yes, he's far more advanced. But also, it could be just the fact that he started working really young because yeah. he was a, he's an actor. Yeah. So a lot of times when you kind of start working really young, you already have that natural sense of yeah. like working and business mindset. Like, and I think she just didn't like, yeah. you know, I mean, she's been in the movie. She was like sheltered. Like she still yeah. lives with her parents. Yeah. She and still lives with her, like her sisters live there. They all, so that tells you like where her mindset is. And it seems like they met somewhere in the middle. Yeah. And shout out to her dad. Yeah. Who to me steals the scenes even away from Bradley Cooper and Sean Penn <laughs> when he shows up. And the first time that you see him, this guy is outside playing basketball at night by himself, turns around, looks around and goes, Hey, what the fuck? <laughs> and that's the first, that's your introduction to him. And you're like, where were you? Like, where were you? Yeah. And then like later on when she comes in the bikini and he just turns around and just, what the fuck? Like, yeah. it, it's like his, reactions and his moments were so perfect and so wonderful that I was, yeah. I was like, you, that's the kind of thing you can't train. You know, you have these two brilliant train, you know, I me, mean, even with Tom Waits, you have these brilliant trained actors who are supposed to go way overboard with their performances. And you, you really, you realize when you watch him, you can't get that full kind of like tick of just like, insanity out of a trained actor in yeah. the same way that you can somebody who is just sitting down with their daughters mm -hmm. and just comfortable being I mean because that's crazy. not much of an acting he's being he's him not. yeah <laughs> that's the cool part he's yeah. being him like there's no acting involvement yeah. <laughs> so all I do is just be the dad that I am absolutely and then even the relationship with her sisters mm -hmm. in the movie I think is brilliant and that you know it seems to really capture how Paul knows them personally mm -hmm. obviously they all have a personal connection and you have Esty, who's kind of like you know kind of like the one that you can always you can read her face you can <laughs> see every single thing that she's thinking on her face and you get to the shabbat dinner and you see her you know just like the look on her face yeah. as uh skylar gazondo's lance who's like, we're going to get into that character in a little bit. Yeah. Like, when he's talking about his whole atheism yeah. thing, and you just see her just, like, bubbling, just, like, wanting to just, like, be like, you idiot. <laughs> and she's just holding it all in. And then you have kind of, like, the quiet, pot-smoking genius that is Danielle. Yeah. You know? And I just love the... The way that he captured all of their interactions with yeah. each other, especially Alana following Esty around, just like I know you're thinking about something, you thinker, you think things. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which is also funny because that gives me a little side kind of thought on like tradition. Yeah. You know, and because think about it, them being at home maybe yeah. until they're married, and yeah, you know what I mean. Like that played a major part. Yeah. 
in like the role that she plays too as well comparative to Gary yeah. you know because his mom kind of just lets yeah. him go out there and do what he does while she works as well yeah and he's taking care of his little brother yeah while for her it's more of a in a traditional sense yeah. you know so I've known people like that you know they don't you know, leave their parents' house. They don't move out until yeah. they're married. Yeah. So, and I think that may have been a major factor in why she still was at home and why her sister was still at home. Because until you meet a man, yeah. until he can provide for you, and he asks you to marry him, and you guys get married, then you can, like, go home to your own house. Absolutely. And also, like, shout out to Mary Elizabeth Ellis, who plays the mom. Yeah. I don't really feel like anybody really gave her, as the movie was coming out, any credit for mm-hmm. her performance. But... She was really, really good in that movie. Yeah. And played that part really well. And in particular, you know, like the there's that scene when they go and they get cheeseburgers. Mm-hmm. And there's just kind of this quietness between them that is, I think sometimes it can be hard for, uh, when you watch certain movies, you can tell that it's kind of hard for actors to just be able to be quiet together and be in their own space Mm -hmm. and she just inhabits every space that she's in so perfectly yeah and then i think she allows gary to be a little bit of the man of the house yeah yeah you know so because it's clear that the father isn't present yeah so i think a lot of that subtleness that i saw had to do with allowing him yeah to be kind of the man of the house yeah and i'm also very curious about the fact that you know the gary character is based on gary getzman who is in real life uh, Tom Hanks's uh, producing partner. Okay. And a lot of these stories about, you know, getting arrested for murder and like, you know, under false pretenses and starting a waterbed store and all of this stuff were, these were all real things that he actually did at that age. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that he really did hire, you know, some dancer named kiki page to be his chaperone one time when he went somewhere <laughs> and all this stuff and it's it's really really cool how all those stories filtered in to create that character yeah but um i think one of the other things that it's hard not to talk about with this movie is the music yeah yeah the music was great the soundtrack is amazing one of my favorite soundtracks of his it sits up there at Boogie Nights for me yeah. in terms of his soundtracks. And I, I was, one of the things we were talking about with the movie was that um, as we were watching it, you know, we had both called out how much some of the music reminded us of Punch Drunk Love. Mm-hmm. And then you realize when you look at the soundtrack that Johnny Greenwood only wrote one piece for the whole entire movie. Yeah, yeah. And so like in the opening, you have Nina Simone's July Tree mm-hmm. is playing in the background then when they go into the um, uh, into the team fair, which to me was like one of the coolest things. I felt like when we were watching that movie in the theater, I felt so gypped that I never <laughs> had anything like that as a kid. You yeah. know, like when I was a kid, we didn't have a team fair yeah. that we could go to and hang no, out. No, like, like that, man. Not no. at all. I've never, no. And like we didn't even have like a pinball palace when I was growing up. It was the mall. Or like a rec. You know, like the recreational yeah. room in your neighborhood. Sometimes yeah. there was like this yeah, like room, a rec center. Yeah, like yeah. a little rec center you could go to right by your school or yeah. by a major playground in your neighborhood. So and, that's what I remember. And maybe that's a little bit of a product of growing up in the, you know, southeast of the United States that, you know, most of my growing up was done 
hanging out in the woods, you know. But like, <laughs> Weird. <laughs> you know, but like it, it was, we definitely did not have places like that growing up. So seeing that there and that being such a component to so many kids' lives growing up, I was like, man, like yeah. that, that would have been great. And it great. was very like constructive. It was. You know, because it set your mind and your hands to doing something really, yeah. really like constructive. And that's what I liked about that piece, honestly. I was yeah. just like, okay, so this is somewhere that the kids can come and actually think mm-hmm. business-like before they're even at the age where they could be business-like. So it was really awesome actually yeah. to see that. So I was like, okay, you know, you're raising, you're, you yeah. know, trying to raise up young gentlemen to be like businessmen, you yeah. know? So I thought that was pretty cool. I did too. And, but like when he comes into the, um, into the teen fair, you have, uh, Blue Sands by the Chico, Chico Hamilton quintet. Yeah. Playing in the background. Both July Tree, Priest Nina Simone singing, and, uh, all of the, the Chico Hamilton piece sound like they could have been original pieces written for that time. A, a, a P.T. Anderson movie. Yeah. And I'm, well, her, Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> and that was just one of those interesting things that it, I think that this movie, more so than some of the other recent ones, really does show like, oh, this is why his soundtracks sound the way they do. This is the kind of music he actually leans into in his yeah. personal time. And you can tell it inspires him. So, yeah. yeah. And I, I think that that's just really, really incredible. But also, um, some of the other music that comes in, like, of course... Uh, any time that Paul McCartney and Wings yeah. cuts into a yeah. movie really well <laughs> is amazing. And having Let Me Roll It start. Oh, I mean, yes. I don't really feel like any movie should ever try and use that song again. It was yeah. just perfect. He has claim on it. He does. <laughs> and that that's one of the best scenes in the whole entire movie. Yeah. Um, it, but like, you know, that or um, uh, when, uh, of course, when David Bowie comes in with life on Mars. And then um, in particular, the one that I really liked was in the beginning of the movie mm-hmm. when uh, Stumbling In by um, Chris Norman and Susie Quattro mm-hmm. comes in and then it cuts to them on the plane and the introduction of Lance. <laughs> Lance. Lance, a yeah. character that I absolutely adore in this movie. <laughs> Oh my goodness, yes. He was something else, I have to say. I mean, the fact that he comes in with, uh, you know, uh, introducing himself in Spanish, (laughs) and then looking around and going, I've never flown this bird before. You know, it's like... How do you say his last name? Skyler Gisando? I think it's Gisando. That's how I've been pronouncing it. I might be, like, quietly butchering his name, but I've I've been saying Gisando. Okay. Of course, we first saw him in Curb Your Enthusiasm. Yes. Asking Larry why he needs a second opinion. Yes. He was a doctor before he was a doctor. He was. He was like D.V. Hauser. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, it, like, that character was, to me, one of the great P.T. Anderson creations. Yeah. And ends up inadvertently giving Alana one of the best lines in the whole entire movie, which is, what does your penis look like? Yeah. 
and he's like a normal penis, and she's like, then you're fucking Jewish. (laughs) 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 But she says, is it circumcised? He's like, yeah, and she's like, then you're fucking Jewish. And it's like one of those moments you're just like, yes. (laughs) Yes, this is amazing. (laughs) Um, Because her dad is traditional. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It goes back to that same thing. Yep. (laughs) Um, And then, of course, you know, going into some of the other sequences and people in that movie, I mean, some of the sequences of that movie are unbelievable. And, you know, thinking about the Lance character and when um, Gary calls uh, uh, Alana and she picks up the phone. And, well, first I think it was Danielle who answers the phone and then he says it's Lance. And then there's that long silence of them listening to each other on the other end. Watching that sequence this time, that sequence, the sequence where uh, um, they go into the team fair and Gary gets arrested, mm-hmm. and the sequence when they're dealing with the U-Haul truck made me realize, I was like, P.T. Anderson would make a great horror movie. Because those scenes are so kind of like, they keep you on edge, and, but nothing's really happening. You I mean, I mean the way she's flying down that hill, something is happening. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but like, I don't know if I could have controlled that that truck like that. I man. wouldn't that was have been crazy. able to either. Like yeah. I would have been like Gary. I would have crashed along the way. <laughs> I would have been like Gary at the end of that, just been like hardcore. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like that was amazing. That I mean the Bradley Cooper sequence in that movie from beginning to end is, oh, is the crown jewel of the film. It is. I mean, it's, it's from the moment he's introduced and starts talking about the way of the streets. <laughs> <laughs> like he would know. <laughs> of course there's, there's the, the brilliant Kevin Smith story with John Peters that John Peters once told Kevin Smith, you know why we're going to make a great movie? Because me and you were from the streets. <laughs> it's like, you're like, wow. Okay. That, yeah. <laughs> that, that was this guy for real. <laughs> <laughs> Which was another great, like, jewel. Yeah. Was absolutely. Harriet Sansom Harris? Yes. Sansom yeah. Harris. Okay. So she was amazing. She was like the casting director. Yes. So that was pretty hilarious. That, that- part was like... Love to Tatum. <laughs> like, I was like, wherever she's on, I might want to. Yeah, definitely want. I, I want to go party with her. Bueno. I mean, Fantastico. Her her whole entire bit in that movie is unbelievable. Yeah, and it's one of those like kind of things that you get into where you're like, this is this is what a superstar looks like. Yeah, and she comes in and just like eats up. Of course, she was also. In Phantom Thread as Barbara Rose. Yes. And they had to just like force the dress off of her. Get that the dress yeah. off of her. <laughs> and, um, but she she definitely her she has what maybe five minutes in the whole entire movie. Yeah. And it's another like scene. I mean, like I there is so many times just in my daily life now where I do just say Bueno, Fantastico, Fantastico. you know, <laughs> and like um one of my other favorite moments of hers, you know, when uh, she says, you know, do you know any other sports or martial arts or something? And Alana's like, I know Cop Co- McGraw. And she was like, I don't know that. What is Quick Draw McGraw? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I love the part when she's like, you're like a pit bull. 
or, or you're a fucking fighter, aren't yeah, you? Yeah, you're a fighter. <laughs> you come in here all pretty with your <laughs> and I'm just like, wow, yeah. like she was just amazing. She was, and it, yeah, her her uh, insistence on commenting on Alana's very Jewish nose, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know the the other thing that I thought was so interesting about that scene rewatching it is also kind of an, an an undercurrent reality of of what actresses really had to deal with at that time when she does have this one moment where it goes away from the humor entirely and she very straightforward tells her you will lose out on roles if you do not do nudity yeah and it was like I couldn't imagine being in a room and saying that to somebody yeah. Like, that is pretty mind-blowing. And, you know, I mean, of course, like, there are the realities in film of, of how all of that works. But I couldn't imagine being the person that sits across from somebody else at a desk. I have to tell them that. And levels with them just says straight up, like, you know, you you are a woman. You're going to lose out on roles because you don't take your clothes off. Yeah. And I was like, that, that like, the kind of darkness of that moment that yeah. she just was able to kind of switch the gears so quick Mm -hmm. that I was like, this is unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. And it it was really, really special. It was. Um, Also pointing out another scene that I absolutely loved that has a great musical bit in there was uh, when Accentuate the Positive by Bing Crosby and the Andrew Sisters comes up (laughs) and he walks into the uh, waterbed store with... um, Ayanna Haley or Holly, I think I don't know how to pronounce her last name, and um, the great George DiCaprio, <laughs> and that that scene that is simultaneously so funny and so sexy, yeah, and just unbelievable. Yeah, like, like she gives it a vibe, man. <laughs> she definitely does. And the the shots of her looking direct into the lens, you're kind yes. of like, oh man, I I know exactly what Paul's thinking yeah. right now. <laughs> like, you just kind of see him enjoying yeah. having this beautiful girl on set and just yeah. kind of like, I'm going to have fun today. She was just enticing the camera. It she was, was awesome. Yeah. Like, and he's always good at getting that aspect of people that can seduce a camera. Yeah. He's really good at that. And of course, you know, outside of somebody like her, he also, I mean, one of the most seductive people he's ever put on camera to me was Daniel Day-Lewis. And, yeah. and two very dark and bizarre roles, but he's so handsome. In mm-hmm. both of those roles, mm-hmm. is, and the way he looks throughout those movies, you're kind of like, "Wow!" Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, revisiting it though, how did you how did you feel about it? I thought it was great. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's one of those amazing like coming of age stories mm-hmm. because even at 25, you're still trying to grow up yeah you know it's not something that it's not like you've grown up no you're still trying to grow up yeah at 25 like a lot of us like to think we're grown but no we're still babies at that age man so we're still trying to grow up trying to find our way in the world trying to find what fits us that's why she had to kind of like kind of go around to different jobs trying to figure out what she's supposed to be because even toward the end when she you know starts um trying to go more into the political realm. Yeah. And she's now, you know, working with Ben Safdie, who was supposed to be a, poli- Lacks, yeah, yeah. a politician at that time. And so seeing her feel like that's the adult thing to do. Yeah. You just saw her just trying to find her way and trying to like, just grow up in that, which we have to talk about that part as well. Yeah. 
I, what was it she said? She's like, you're trying to sell pinball machines, and I'm a politician. <laughs> <laughs> Are the, you? <laughs> the, the Benny Safdie, Joel Lack sequence um, that also included a beautiful performance by Joseph Cross. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Was one of the, it, it was the thing in the movie that I expected the least that I enjoy going back to the most yeah. now, having seen the movie a few times. Because mm-hmm. it's absolutely heartbreaking. It is unbelievably heartbreaking to see the relationship between those two characters. Yeah, between... because he just really wants, he wants Joe, Joe to like accept himself. Yeah. And just like, just be yeah, with Matthew, normally. Yeah, yeah, just like, why can't you just be that? But he felt like, no, no one would accept me. They won't take me serious if I'm a politician and they find out yeah. that I'm, I'm also a gay politician. Yeah, so, especially at that time. And yeah, so I just, that was really heartbreaking. It was. And the the way that um, they allow, that he allows you to come to the realization with Alana. You know, I mean, of course, walking into the movie, I kind of knew who Joel Wax was a little bit. Yeah. And so I knew a little bit of his history. Mm-hmm. But um, you felt a collective sigh of sorrow in the theater that first time that we saw it. And it's the shot of Alana in the mirror Mm -hmm. coming to the realization of why she was actually called to the restaurant. So, of course, she goes bounding into that restaurant like, this guy likes me. Yeah, I'm about to be in. And I think one of the things were, too, was I'm about to be in an adult relationship. Yeah. I'm about to be with a man. Yeah. And she kind of goes bounding in there she's so excited and then she sits down at that table and you watch in the reflection of the mirror her come to that realization of why she's really there and what's really happening with this yeah. guy and you just felt the air get sucked out of the room with yeah. a full audience of everybody yeah. just like whoa no oh man yeah because okay. it was really unfortunate because not only does you know the boyfriend wants him to like yeah. be himself and yeah like but for you to pull someone else in on something that they yeah. didn't know what was even happening. Yeah. So you're breaking two hearts that day. <clears throat> yep. You know, so it yeah. was really unfortunate. And it was uh, incredible, you know, the moment that uh, Joseph Cross says afterwards as Matthew, where he's, you know, you know, do you have a boyfriend? Is he a shit too? Aren't they <laughs> yeah. all? You know, and yeah. just them just holding each other and crying was like one of those moments. So you're just kind of like, I don't know too many other movies that could have captured this this well and i think that also made her really kind of realize some things about herself because yeah. think about it if you're always running yeah like joel was yeah then you then what happens then you're never going to be happy so i think that was the moment she realized like okay i just gotta face it then i i love gary like yeah that's the moment she came to that realization she's like okay I, yes. I, I can't fight anymore i i i love gary <laughs> and you you bring up one of i think the biggest, most important, and hilarious kind of um, aspects of the movie, both hilarious in a literal way, mm-hmm. and but also um, very beautiful in another way, which is running. There's so much running yeah, in this is. movie, both physically and metaphorically. Yeah. This entire movie is, it could have been called, you know, running pizza. Like, yeah. it, it's sort of <laughs> licorice running. It's There's so much running in this yeah. movie, and you see people internally running away from things Mm -hmm. or running toward things in the case of Gary. Yeah. And then you also see the two of them literally running down the streets 
of the San Fernando Valley. Until they smash into each other. <laughs> Boom. Like, that was hilarious. <laughs> that was like one of those uh, uh, wonderful screwball comedy moments yeah. in the movie. <laughs> it's just incredible. But right there in front of the movie theater. Yep. Wasn't and, that hilarious? <laughs> yeah, and I, I looked at the marquee. They were playing uh, uh, Live and Let Die and uh, I think it was Death Wish yeah. were the two movies they were playing. Uh, there was a Charles Bronson movie playing. I wish I would have written it down. Yeah. But yeah, no, I love looking at marquees and <laughs> movies to see what's playing yeah, that what night. Playing. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, I mean, all of that stuff was just unbelievable. I, I think one of the other things that was really interesting that we called out from the very first time that we saw it, but that I still continue to find fascinating is the aspect of uh, family and friends that yeah. were involved in this movie. That's such a rare thing to see yeah, today. Yeah, it was very close. Like, he brought all his family in, man. Yeah. And over time, you know, friends become family. Like, yeah. you get what I'm saying? Like, yeah. So, yeah, he brought all family in. <laughs> yeah, because so even Maya shows up in a little moment with Tim Conway Jr. Mm-hmm. Of course, Tim Conway Jr.'s dad was one of, mm-hmm. you know, uh, P.T. Anderson's dad's their best friend. Their children was in there. Yeah, all of their kids were in the mm-hmm. movie. Um, their oldest daughter who goes on the date with yes. uh, Gary mm-hmm. looks exactly like Maya. Yep. It's unbelievable. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, and of course that being a great sequence as well when Sean Penn is there hanging out as Jack Holden. Uh, something that I didn't really understand why he wouldn't just call him William Holden because that's essentially who he yeah. is you know, supposed to be. Uh, and Gary looking over watching him just going like you guys want martinis I'll get three martinis this table right now (laughs) (laughs) because that's one of the flaws that or at least for his character right is that he's not a grown man (laughs) he has everything else going for him but he's just not at the age yet you know and I love that aspect of like that you know this kid is like you said earlier he's a hustler he mm-hmm. always has something going he's mm-hmm. always got some scheme that he's cooking up mm-hmm. he's way ahead of I don't know if I call him schemes but... well yeah I mean like uh I guess however you want to it might not be the right word but yeah. like however you want to put it he's always got something cooking yeah and he always that, has business in the works you yeah. know something just yeah and that you know, I mean, I know when I was sixteen, that's not what I was doing. I was definitely hanging out a lot more than I was doing stuff like that. I mean, I was working. Yeah, crazy too. Is I was working actually like full time, like almost yeah. eighty hours a week. Like, yeah, I mean, not eighty hours. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. I can't even be in school at eighty hours, <laughs> yeah. but I mean, forty hours a mm-hmm. week. And yeah, it was hard. It was yeah. hard. But at sixteen, that's what I was doing. But I was a mini little hustler at sixteen because. Yeah. You know, sometimes you just have to do it. <laughs> yeah, and it, it definitely, like, you know, I wasn't really hustling that much at 16. It's definitely not in the way that Gary was. Yeah. But, I was, like, selling candy bars at school. Yeah. You know, I almost got in trouble a couple of times for that. Yeah? Yep. Like, in a, in a Gary Valentine kind yes. of way? Yeah. Like I got, I, like, I got in trouble a few times because they were like, you cannot sell this stuff on school property without it being yeah. part of a school activity. And yeah. it wasn't. This was my own personal stash. Yeah. Okay? <laughs> Bringing stuff to school and giving people options that maybe weren't in, like, the vending machines or in yeah. the school cafeteria. I was giving people other options. Yeah. And so they were buying them from me. And a lot of times I got in trouble because I was selling them during class. Yeah. 
So I got in trouble <laughs> a lot for selling stuff at school. Well, at least there was not an oil crisis at that time. No. And at least you weren't selling anything that was no. oil-based. I, no. <laughs> like I wouldn't even know what that meant at the time. I wouldn't even know, man. Yeah. But I was doing little harmless things. Yeah. You know what I mean? But I was still getting in trouble for them. <laughs> well, you know, that's what was funny was the, like, you know, using that oil scene as like a great example. But it was like Gary was always always had some kind of thing in the works or Mm -hmm. that he was involved in. But then you see those aspects of him still just being a teenager, you know, that it's like you have uh, the Frisbee character, you know, talking about like, is he always asking for a hand job? Yeah. And And the part which has to all do with like that young boy mind of how he views like sex and stuff. Because you remember the other part is when he's in the car with with Lana, Alana, after she do, yeah. she's with the casting director, he goes, but you won't even let me see your boobs. Yeah. But you'll show them to everyone. And yeah. I'm just like, yeah, that's where you're still a little yeah. boy. <laughs> and and his, his excuse that he's like, there's too much nudity in pictures now. Yeah. <laughs> but you won't let me see but, your boobs. <laughs> and like later when they're at the, um, at the restaurant, they find out about the oil crisis when he's looking at his newspaper and it shows what he's looking at, he's looking at all the dirty movies yeah. they're playing, yeah. you know? So he, <laughs> and he doesn't even understand that, that there is, yeah. you know, and then that's that, that, that actually affects their business. And that was the other aspect of it was that simultaneously, that's where you also see those aspects of him being a, a teenager still is, you know, when it gets brought up, like, what do you think that, vinyl is made out of yeah he's like, the water bits like yeah. yeah and he's like i don't know i thought it was like a scientific fabric like a or rubber a rubber and she's, and like, she's like also <laughs> <laughs> rubber's made out of oil dipshit <laughs> <laughs> and like that was one of those things that i really loved was that aspect of him that it's like as much as he is very much ahead of other kids his age yeah he's still a kid his age. Yeah. And I, I like that aspect of it. Yeah. I thought that was that was really, really good for that character. Yeah, it was awesome. Um interesting, this was his most expensive movie since Magnolia. Oh really? And it was a, it had a forty million dollar budget, which I'm assuming had a lot to do with COVID. Yeah. Um Yeah. But that he he brought in a new producer for this one, Sarah Murphy. Yeah. And I heard this story that he found her and was like, I heard that you can do stuff on the cheap and kind of brought her in because she could help with navigating budget and getting costs down as much as possible. And I was like, that's kind of interesting that he kind of kind of is at a point right now where he sort of knows that, you know, uh, the kinds of movies that he makes are not what's really at the forefront of production. And so he's really leaning into people who can help him kind of navigate the the current kind of world in cinema. And of course, he went back with this one to um, also working with um, Mike DeLuca, mm-hmm. who he had made his first few movies with. And it, it was it was very interesting to me how how he's been because I think he's been doing a very good job at navigating stuff. Because I mean, I know like every time that we saw this movie in the theater recently, it was full. Yeah. So it's like, you know, there was an awareness of it. and But unfortunately, it was, it did not do well in the box office. It didn't, it didn't make its budget. But it's, no. his movies are always critically acclaimed. Yeah. I mean, yeah. there's always a beautiful 
story and the way he writes it and the yeah. way he um, shoots it. It's always amazing. So I understand it being cri- critically acclaimed, yeah. but why some viewers, like why people yeah. don't just understand. Yeah, because it's, um, it, it is a comedy, but it's also just, it, it's a character study too. Yeah. And Which I always love those. So. I do too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's why it's interesting that he's become who he is in the film industry, you know, in, in, in American cinema at this mm-hmm. point, because he's one of the rare guys, you know, I mean, I guess to a degree, you could also talk about Tarantino or you could also talk about Fincher, but even they have a certain kind of element of genre with everything that mm-hmm. they do, um, or with a lot of their work anyway. Mm-hmm. And with Paul, it's kind of like you're always kind of comparing whatever he's doing to whatever he just did. Yeah. And so that's that's a very, very different mm-hmm. thing that we don't really have a whole lot of other people like that. Yeah. So it's really special. Yeah, because what's so cool is that it doesn't seem like he's ever trying to keep up with anybody else. No. But he's always trying to one-up on himself. Yeah. And, and that's the beauty. And I think it's always funny whenever you see that the things that he does obviously affects filmmakers a lot because you start seeing elements of things in his films start cropping up in other people's movies. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, one of the things that first crops up in my mind is Johnny Greenwood yeah. and the way that he does those scores. Think about how many independent movies now are advertised or smaller scale movies are now advertised with music that sounds like it was by Johnny Greenwood. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's like this weird, intense kind of music where like violins are being detuned and yeah. stuff. And it just kind of feels like so much of what he does really affects filmmakers in mm-hmm. ways where it's like they're all kind of running to try and replicate what he did. Yeah. But, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I think this is just a phenomenal, phenomenal movie. I do as well. I enjoyed it. It's one of my favorites of 2021. Any final thoughts on Licorice Pizza? No, just if you haven't seen it. Go see it. Yeah, it's, check it out. It's on Amazon yeah, Prime. Yeah, Amazon for, Prime. Like for free right now. Uh-huh. You and can watch it. Yep. Unbelievable movie. Yeah. Awesome. All right. So I think up next we got Repo Man. Yes. Cool. All right. So 1984's Repo Man. Yes. Written and directed by Alex Cox. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite kind of, um, one of my favorite movies, but also one of my favorites. It's kind of a, it's sort of a coming of age movie, even though um, the Neil Estevez character is supposed to be 21. He's not. It's still a coming of age yeah, to me. It, it, it is to me too. Because especially it, if it's not about like marriage and kids yeah. and family men yeah. or family women, like trying to. Do those traditional things you do when you grow up. If it's not about that, most times there, they usually tend to fall into those coming-of-age stories for me. What about our relationship? Fuck that. (laughs) (laughs) So um, I'm curious because this is one that I kind of – I grew up kind of with this movie – uh, sort of around, and I was it was sort of one of those movies that I loved that I never really got to share with anybody, but this was one that I kind of brought to you, so I'm curious how you feel yeah. about this one. I didn't. I heard about this one, but I had never really taken the time to watch it until you actually introduced me to it. Yeah. So um, I thought it was hilarious. Yeah. It had this like weird, like omni, you know, ominous presence to it, but yeah. also like 
had this like dark comedy and these underlining yeah. weird things. Yeah. And it reminded me like the kind of spoof movies, kind of like the spoof you do on yeah. p- poking fun at people, like yeah. with the UFOs and yeah. those of, things. Yeah. So it, had, it did a lot of poking. Satire it. Yes, yeah. it did a lot of poking. <laughs> it did. It did. It's, uh, that seems to be Alex Cox's specialty. Yeah. Um, I, I'm, I'm kind of curious also about your kind of perception of something very specific with this movie, which is the kind of punk rock aspect of it. Yeah. I'm somebody who definitely grew up kind of entrenched in a lot of punk music and kind of heavier music in general. But um, that aspect of it, I'm just curious how that filtered in to you as a viewer, because I know that like some of the music that's kind of like kind of very influential to the movie, you know, like Suicidal Tendencies Mm -hmm. and The Circle Jerks and of course Iggy Pop, Mm -hmm. not really necessarily being like on your iPod playlists um, yeah, not really. Um, though I grew up listening to some of their music. Yeah. Um, I was never like a to- like I was never a full on fan. Yeah. But I still found it like great to listen to whenever you yeah. were in those moments or those moves growing yeah. up. Like, yeah. So I would actually take the time to listen to that music, but wasn't like huge on it. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm curious, like with that being such an informative part of this film, how did a lot of that aspect of like the, the kind of punk culture filter into you as an audience member, like watching the movie or was it just kind of something that was just kind of there that you didn't really, really put much consideration into in, in some ways? Well, if you would have asked me this like 10 years ago, yeah. I've been like, no, I didn't put much thought into it, honestly. Sure. But now I like paying more attention to those types of things. So it makes yeah. you want to go back and actually kind of check out. Yeah. The music. Yeah. Because you hear it and then it makes you like dance and you start moving <laughs> as the movie's like playing and stuff like that. At least that's what I was doing. Yeah. So it, it would make me go back and research yeah. a lot of the music I was hearing. Yeah. So yeah. Okay. So yeah. I think um, that's one of the first things that really attracted me to this movie was mm-hmm. the fact that, you know, the, um, of course the original soundtrack is done by uh, various members of the plugs and they were kind of one of the first, they weren't really one of the first, they were just one of the early Latino punk bands mm-hmm. uh, out of California. And the music they did in this was just phenomenal because it is kind of like a, a mix of kind of punk rock, kind of surf guitar, and, and with these elements of Latin music, mm-hmm. like kind of all layered throughout. And of course they do that beautiful guitar piece that kind of plays throughout various, that very melancholy kind of guitar piece yeah. that plays throughout certain aspects and, or certain moments of the movie, rather, and uh, in particular, my favorite moment of the movie with uh, Emilio Estevez right after his girlfriend um, kind of dumps him. I mean, yeah. however you want to put that mm-hmm. one, and um, he, you know, gets up and starts you know yelling out like Saturday Night Football, <laughs> yeah, and, <laughs> and all of these, uh, you know, he starts yelling out all these cultural touch points and kind of tosses his beer into that music just kind of starts of course plays again at the end of the movie yeah when um he gets into the car um but um i guess like what what were some of the the things about this one that's kind of uh that kind of stick with you some of the things that stick with me was some of the lines actually yeah um it was harry dean stanton actually yeah because he has some of the best lines yeah he really does and this whole time he's definitely like 
I don't know if I can honestly say a father figure. Yeah. <laughs> but he's almost like that uncle, that fun uncle. Yeah. That gives you this wild, crazy advice, however true. Yeah. They're, they still sound wild to your to your like ears. And yeah. when you're hearing him trying to teach you all these like lessons as you're growing up. And one of the like things he says in here is regular people spend most of their lives trying to avoid tense situations. And Repo Man spends most of his life getting into tense situations. So yeah, I kind of, yeah. I don't know, that really stood out to me. I yeah. kind of really like that that line that he yeah. says right there. And I think it's true for all of us, not just for his character and not in the Repo Man sense, of yeah, course, yeah. but you get what he means. Yeah. It's like, He's always walking into day, danger, like head yeah. on, while the rest of us is trying to avoid it. Yeah, like we just don't want the conflict. While they have no choice but to kind of create the conflict, right? Yeah. Because they have to take people's cars, yeah. which is also part of meaning taking people's part of their livelihood, mm-hmm. right? Because so you need a car, especially depending on what area you're yeah. in. You need, especially in Los Angeles, exactly. You need yeah. a vehicle from to travel from point A to point B. Yeah. So needing these things and you having to be the one responsible, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's your responsibility to kind of take it from somebody, even though they may need it because it's not, um, how do you say, it's nothing personal. Yeah. It's yeah. nothing personal. It's yeah. just my job. Yeah. You know? And so when you see it from that point, I really understand what he means by it, but he lives by a code. So he that was kind of like funny and weird too, is that he lives by his code, but he has to take people cars. <laughs> it, it's really interesting. I mean, the, you know, one of the things is that the, the movie definitely has a kind of um, an anti-establishment kind of, you know, which filters into that kind of punk ethos. This real kind of like anti-establishment kind of code to it, which I really love because it, it creates that tension between Otto and Harry Dean Stanton's character. Mm-hmm. But. <laughs> but. <laughs> that, um, you know, it's like he, he, they, they very much look down at quote unquote normal people. And that's the part where Otto can kind of agree. Mm-hmm. And it's the code where they kind of separate because mm-hmm. a code means that you still have a structure yeah, around values. You. And you can tell the Otto both embrace the idea of being part of the, the group that kind of take something away from the people who live by the establishment by being a repo man, but simultaneously is going to reject so much of what his mentor is teaching him because there is a code and the ethos involved. Mm -hmm. And I thought that that tension, that back and forth was something that was just incredible and just beautifully layered into this movie. Yeah. I mean, one of the most hilarious parts was when, um, I forgot the character name, but, you remember the black man jumps out of the Cyber car. Yes, yeah. he jumps out of the car and he starts shooting at the window because yeah. the person that the car belongs to, he's shooting out. They're shooting yeah, out they their shoot window. Out Otto's, the window of the car. Of the car repoing. that he's yeah. repoing, and then he starts to shoot back. And then later, he's like, he gives this whole spiel about like the the like blanks work as well. Yeah, and that kind of scares Otto, and he drops his beer on the ground. Yeah. So. I thought that was a hilarious moment. Yeah, get in the car, white boy. Yeah. <laughs> it's like one of the great moments. Yes. He, he has two of my favorite lines in the movie. Get in the car, white boy, but also, uh, man, fuck a John Wayne. Like Those yeah. are like two of my favorite <laughs> kind of moments in the movie. I mean, I think that's one of the things that you brought up that um, 
I absolutely love about this movie, which is it is one of the most quotable movies yeah. I've ever seen. Definitely, I mean, which is funny because I don't really know that movie well. Yeah. But, like, I can quote all these things yeah. now. It's just, like, so weird. I'm like, okay. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> stuff like... Um, you know, uh, uh, one of my favorites that, it, I mean, it still crops in my mind, like, at least once a week, which is, let's go do some crimes, you know? <laughs> it's, like, one of those, like, hilarious kind of, like, lines where it's, like, you know, instead of saying, let's get out of here, it's, like, let's go do some crimes. Yeah. The, the, like, he had to put emphasis on yeah. crimes, you know? <laughs> and, and, of course, later on when, uh, you know, those two characters are running away and she's, like, you know, let's go do those crimes. And he's, like, yeah, let, let's go get sushi and, and not pay for it. Yeah. <laughs> but that's how you also know people who are trying to be something they're not yeah because I, even Otto states that at the end when he's like yeah you remember he was like no we're both from the suburbs man yeah. what are you talking about it, it's uh, one of my favorite moments that um dick rude's character when he's dying after mm-hmm. he's been shot he says uh i know a life of uh, i know a life of crime led me to this moment but i blame society society did this to me and Otto responds to it by saying bullshit you're a white suburban punk just like me yep and it's like, yeah, that's yeah. that's a pretty accurate summation of, yeah. of this entire film yeah. on so many mm-hmm. levels that, you know, that that is kind of in kind general. Aaron grievances that you really don't have. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, also a funny thing that uh, about that sequence is the liquor store holdup at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, there is no way that did not inspire the donut shop. Uh, shootout in Boogie Nights. Oh. <laughs> you know, looking back at like an P.T. Anderson movie when um, uh, Don Cheadle's Buck Swope character is yeah. in the donut shop yeah. and all of the guys draw on each other yeah. simultaneously. Mm-hmm. And then you go back and you look at the the liquor store holdup that goes wrong at the end of, of Repo Man. I'm like, I know that Paul Thomas Anderson likes this movie a lot. Yeah. And I, I always think to myself, I'm like, there's no way that that scene did not inspire that Boogie Nights thing yeah. that he almost kind of turned into more of like a David Mamet sequence. Yeah. But, um, I'm curious, mm-hmm. how did it inform you? Because I mean, how early did you see that movie? I think I saw this for the first time when I was around 14 or 15 and I didn't get it. Okay. I like, I liked it, but, um, there's an aspect of this movie that I've come to love that I didn't, really respond to when I first saw it, which um, there's an aspect of the movie, which is interesting that we're talking about Legend of Billie Jean, because that was actually something I was going to point out with that one that doesn't have this. There's an aspect of the movie where, and I don't know if you feel this, where there are jagged edges with the movie Mm -hmm. and it kind of gives this feeling of sort of like, it's, it's almost like it's not ever quite going as far like as close to perfect as it could. Yeah. You know, like there's always something that's slightly missing with it. There's always something that slightly doesn't hit exactly right. Mm -hmm. It's something, there's something about the movie that feels very offbeat Mm -hmm. and like in a musical kind of way, Mm -hmm. like very kind of like it was, it's almost like held together by scotch tape. Yeah. And the first time that I saw it, I didn't really respond to that. It felt jagged to mm-hmm. me. The experience of watching a movie felt 
kind of incomplete and jagged. And mm. that's something that I now love about the movie because whenever I watch it, it creates a sort of a slight tension inside of me mm-hmm. that I really enjoy now because I realize that's that's kind of part of it. Mm-hmm. Part of it is that, you know, the the jokes don't land the way that they're supposed that not the way they're supposed to, but the way that you're conditioned yep. for a joke to Condition, land. Yeah. And the the um, kind of like big moments of the movie don't really land the way that you're conditioned for them to land. Yeah. Like when Dick Rude gets killed or yeah. like when um, they finally get the Malibu. You know, mm-hmm. it's like you're conditioned to have that be a moment where, you know, the music swells and there's kind of this big thing. And so it just kind of happens yeah. because it's never the point. Yeah. And so the first time that I saw it, I really didn't know how to respond to it. I was just kind of mad about it. And then I saw it again when I was probably about 17. Mm-hmm. And then it became kind of a movie that really was sort of like, oh, okay, I kind of, this is this is 100% something that I can get behind. Was it because kind of, of some of the experiences you were starting to have? Was it more of that? Like a coming maybe, of age kind of? Maybe a little bit. I mean, like definitely um, uh, kind of, I think what it was was um, getting to an age where I was a little bit more politically aware. Okay. Made the movie kind of click with me get, and, and starting to understand the political awareness of kind of punk music in general mm-hmm. and kind of um, starting to, to feel in my own personal life just as a teenager, like what we all go through, which is just being dissatisfied by everything. Yeah. You know, I w- when I was coming up on graduating from high school, I was very like, kind of like, why do I have to go to college? Just because you told me to. And like, when I started having all of those kind of feelings of sort of like, I'm not going to do every single thing that society tells me to do. Yeah. That was definitely when this movie clicked with me yeah. in a very full kind of way. And I was like, wow, okay, yeah, this is, this is kind of like anthemic in yeah. a way, you know, this one and, um, days and confused both yeah. because of the Floyd character and yeah. the, the Floyd character I can relate to a lot more than the auto character. Mm-hmm. The auto character is almost kind of like the guy that you, you're sort of like, yeah, man, that's how I am. But mm. you know that you're really not. not yeah. Um, it's, but it's, I think even at some point, even Otto feels like he's not like how yeah. Otto really portrays to be. Yeah. Cause there were just some moments where, when things got really intense, he was just like, uh, like yeah. that wasn't really him. Yeah. So it was funny in a lot of ways. Like even the time, like when he goes into, you remember the all black family? Yeah. The the woman, the, the mother that has like four or five, like <laughs> sons. Yeah. And as soon as they come in and sit down, he was just like, all right, not where I'm supposed to be. Yep. So he gets up. Yep. And he has to go, but then he gets he beat up outside because he, he can't move the car. His, uh, his briefcase back. Yep. And she's telling them, like, Mr. Otto said that he could take my card this time, but he's not going to. And they're all just looking at him like, you mother. Yeah, and, and, they, and they were almost like, I would like to see you try. Yep. Yeah. And, so it was so funny. And there was moments where he would get into situations like that when I was just like, yeah, but even you're not yeah. about this life like that, man. Not yeah. even you. Like, it, It's also an interesting movie to me that um, as I've gone on and got more awareness of more things just happening in the world Mm -hmm. the the aspects of certain little jokes that Mm -hmm. he peppers in there that were lost on me are now some of my favorite jokes you know like one of them being the trading of the book of diuretics yeah 
which of course is directly yep. talking about Dianetics and Scientology <laughs> and what that was in Los Angeles at that time. Mm-hmm. Having not been from Los Angeles, I definitely did not get those jokes as a kid. Yeah. Going back to the movie in my 20s when all of a sudden we were living right down the street from at one of the churches of Scientology yeah. and also seeing the master and getting more interested in what that what Scientology and its foundings really were. Yeah. Made those jokes land with me suddenly where <laughs> I was like, oh, because I remember one time reading something about uh, uh, Dianetics and a, a, a kind of a, this early magazine that was published that kind of talked about it a lot. Um, and when I started reading about Dianetics, also one day just clicked with me. I was like, diuretics. I was like, <laughs> repo man. Oh, I get it now. <laughs> oh, no. The okay. idea that Cy Richardson gives him that book. Mm-hmm. And that's his code. Yeah. You know, is is diuretics, you know, and, this, <laughs> and, and Scientology essentially yeah. was hilarious to me. Yeah. And I was like, oh, this is this is just too good. Yeah, that's weird. <laughs> but um I uh, uh yeah, I don't know. It's definitely a movie that, that there are other aspects of it too that like as I went on, like there were certain things that started uh kind of occurring to me in a different kind of way, one of which being um the very odd scene of his parents Mm -hmm. when he comes home and they're just two kind of bombed out hippies that are sitting on the couch smoking a joint. Yeah. And he asks them for his college money. They wind up saying that we gave it away to his televangelist. Yeah. And you see as the movie goes on and the televangelist becomes more and more a part of everything that he is a typical kind of like corrupt televangelist who's stealing everybody's money who even wants the Chevy Malibu for himself. Yeah. You know, he's putting out a reward for the the Malibu at Mm -hmm. a certain point. And all of the, all of that stuff I think is just really, really awesome. Like how it all comes together as you get older and you start seeing other, and you become more aware about different things. And as you become more aware about different things and just in the sense of just knowing about it, just knowing that it exists, just knowing that, what diuretics is, you know, in terms of what it's actually relating to. Just knowing all of that stuff just as, like, shorthand for yourself suddenly makes all of those jokes click in ways that they don't. So it's definitely a a movie that becomes funnier to me the older that I get, which is kind of, like, the exact opposite Mm -hmm. of what a rebellious coming-of-age movie is supposed to do. Yeah, Like, a, a movie like this is really supposed to hit you when you're... 15, 16, and just become kind of like a nostalgia piece for you. Mm-hmm. And with this one, it does the exact opposite, in, in my opinion, mm-hmm. in the sense that I keep going back to it as yeah. I'm getting older. And yeah. it just becomes funnier and funnier <laughs> and funnier to me. And it's funny because we will call it like a coming age story, mm-hmm. but yet you don't fully start understanding everything until you're older. Yeah. So that's, that's funny. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, regardless of that, it, it, uh, the, the lines, the quotable lines in the movie, yeah. you know, hit me right from the very beginning. Yeah. You know, um, stuff like the, you know, the Rodriguez brothers, you know, that have the great moment of, you know, the Romanos Rodriguez do not approve of drug use, and then they light a joint. <laughs> you know? Or, um, you know, I mean, one of the guys I think uh, uh, I was really 
obsessed with, but still am, was uh, Tracy Walter's performance as Miller. Yeah. And, you know, his whole thing of, you know, I, it, the more you drive, the less intelligent you get. Yeah. You know, or um, he has a, a great moment when they first meet and he says, like, you ever feel your mind erode? You ever been to Utah? <laughs> just kind of like, wait, hold on. They're all over the place. How did these two things connect? Yeah. But yeah, no, that, that was sort of, and I, I still just love the soundtrack of this movie more than anything else. Like, yeah. I can, I just love putting on the movie and just having it playing in the background. Yeah. And usually we find ways to talk about movies like this. Like, how were you introduced to this movie? This was one that is, it's a blockbuster movie for Got me. You. I, um, so I had seen another Alex Cox movie called Walker mm-hmm. that I really, really liked. Mm-hmm. And that was one that it, it hit me right from the very beginning. I'm really excited. It's out on Criterion Blu-ray. Uh, it's what I'm getting from the Barnes and Noble sale this year. Yeah. Um, I, it was, that was just a really, really special movie to me. Um, and I had awareness of Alex Cox because he is interviewed on a documentary about Once Upon a Time in the West. Yeah. And um, so I had a really strong kind of understanding of who he was. And of course, he was also one of the writers of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Yep. Um, and I, I really, really, I knew a lot about who he was and everything. And I responded to hearing him talk about movies, but I didn't really know this movie. I was walking through Blockbuster and it's sitting up there and the cover is just, I think the new Criterion cover is even more attractive, but like um, the cover just on the, the, I can't remember if it was a DVD or VHS. I think it was a DVD by that point um, of just Emilio Estevez standing there with his arms crossed and just spray paint and says repo man. I was like, this just looks like a cool cover. And I saw his name on the back as written and directed by, and I saw the cast and I was like, I love Harry Dean Stanton. Mm-hmm. So I usually will check out anything that he's in. Mm-hmm. And then, um, just at one point rented it. And yeah. it was when, you know, Blockbuster used to have that thing where you would rent uh, uh, one new movie, one old movie, and then you get, I think that was how it was. Like it was either two new movies and you get one old one free or one old and one new and you get an old one free. Mm-hmm. And, but it was like a rent to get one free thing. And that was just one of my get one freeze okay. that I wasn't expecting anything out of. And I watched it and I was kind of like, this isn't really what I was expecting, but okay. But yeah. it, it stuck with me. Yeah, because I did keep quoting little lines from it, mm-hmm. and um, uh, what in particular the end when they're doing the whole like, you want a beer? No, a cigarette. And then you know, the other <laughs> guy coming over like, you want a beer? Nope, no beers needed here. And you know, like I just kept saying that, <laughs> but like it wasn't really nothing else really. And then I used to say, get in the car, white boy, a lot. Yeah, <laughs> like, but like that was kind of it. That was mm-hmm. really. All it was to me was just this movie had a couple of funny lines okay. that I'd done, but it stayed in my head for some reason. I've gone back to it a bunch of times. Okay. That's awesome, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I'm also kind of curious, like, so one of the, the aspects of the movie that I really love is there is a reference to another movie in this that is a major component, which is Kiss Me Deadly. Mm. And I don't know. Have you ever seen Kiss Me Deadly? It was a. a well, I'm trying to think. It was a Mike Hammer film noir. Um, I don't think I have. So one of the aspects of Kiss Me Deadly is this briefcase that everybody's looking for. When you open it, it like blows you up, basically. Like oh. steals you, basically. Oh, okay. Um, the, I'm trying not to like. 
give too much saying away. too much away because <laughs> I think this might be one of my throwback recommendations okay, at some you. point. So I'm trying okay. not to. I'm, I'm trying to like play it like really close yeah. to the chest and not like mm-hmm. reveal too much about it for you because I really want you to just experience that. Oh, okay. But the trunk opening up is of course a direct reference to Kiss Me Deadly. Okay. But also the briefcase in Pulp Fiction oh, is awesome. like another yes. like kind of steal. Okay. Um, so that was just one of those funny things that, like, I remember the very first time I saw it, I was like, did they just be Kiss Me Deadly with a Malibu? Like, it's <laughs> just hilarious. You're funny. Um, I, I did think it was interesting, though, that, like, the, the movie took, like, two years to get going. Oh, really? And if you go and find the original script, the original script actually has a, a budget breakdown to make this movie for $70,000. Mm-hmm. It's the exact same script. The ending is different. The ending originally was that, like, L.A. was going to go up in a mushroom cloud or something. But um, the original idea was to make this movie for, like, $70,000 and just make it as, like, a student film, basically. And then they just slowly, they got universal interested in everything and took, like, two years to get it off the ground. But the main character was supposed to be Dick Rude. Mm Mm-hmm. So, like, in an an alternate reality, Dick Rude would have actually been the lead, not Emilio Estevez. Yeah. But, of course, you found a good Emilio Estevez story about this one on the, the documentary that you pointed out to me when I kind of wasn't really paying attention. Oh. That, um, I guess Emilio Estevez was kind of like, no, I'll meet you guys in secret. Yeah, because I think they said they went to his agent or yeah. somebody that was representing him. Yeah. And they said they approached them with the idea of it being Emilio Estevez. Yeah. And then they were just like, no. Yeah. <laughs> like, no, we're trying... To make sure he's like, yeah, in major movie. We're trying to make him like a superstar. We're trying yeah. to make him big, and so he had he heard about it, yeah, and kind of reached out to them himself, and kind of yeah. was like, okay, let me meet. I can't have nobody, yeah, like seeing me meet you guys, but let's meet up. And so that's how they actually got to talking with him about it because he met them like far out somewhere in the middle of nowhere to actually discuss the movie. The thing that just made me laugh about it was when I found out that what they went to a Thai restaurant mm. to meet. And I just thought that was hilarious because in my head, I'm just like, so the idea of an incognito spot to meet your actor <laughs> is just a random Thai restaurant. This is the most repo man thing I've ever heard. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it fits. It fits. <laughs> um, Our imitates life. <laughs> <laughs> uh Talking about like some of the stuff, you know, I mean, like one of the other major quotable lines to me, uh, which it's almost impossible to talk about this movie without talking about those, was uh, Susan Barnes as Agent Rogers at one point saying, um, "It happens sometimes; people just explode, natural causes." You know, it was like <laughs> another one that I just really love that I just yeah. want to throw out there. But um, I, I'm also kind of curious too with this movie. Like, uh, it's a movie that is kind of like it, it is it's really really funny but there's also like an inherent sadness to it mm-hmm. and i'm curious like in the times that you've watched it if that was ever anything that really like struck you or if it was always just kind of finding the jokes because um... to me when i watch this movie i find this tremendous melancholy that exists underneath the film i i don't know if i felt that per se but i will say there were times where um because i've only seen this maybe two or three times. Yeah. So I would say I felt more of a, um, 
and I guess that's why I kind of still see it as a coming of age story mm -hmm. because I just saw somebody who was lost. Yeah. And they're looking for something. I mean, even think about the end yeah. when he decides to go up into the spaceship. Yeah. Like he decides to go. Like yeah. almost it's, like there's nothing here for me. It's so the close and, encounters. Exactly. Yeah. But it's still weird because yeah. it's almost like, dude, you're so young, but you're about to go into, yeah. <laughs> into a, enter into a spaceship, an alien spaceship, and you're just like, there's nothing here mm -hmm. on Earth enough for me to stay, so let me go explore somewhere else. Yeah. So, I mean, in that sense, I found some kind of, like, loss in yeah. that. Like, you know, like, you're just lost. You're, yeah. you're kind of looking for something. You're in search of something. And that's the only thing I, I can say that I really felt outside of kind of, like, the dark humor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it is, that is like one of those things that to me is like really fascinating about the ending is that the ending is simultaneously a, a very kind of, um, uh, like you said, like a, a very interesting meditation on, on a person who is lost trying to find their path, mm -hmm. but also one of the greatest like pointed jokes, like close encounters of the third kind I've ever seen. Because of course, one of the things that we it's hard not to point out with that movie is the fact that like the end of close encounters, yeah. you know, he just kind of gets on the ship. Yeah. Don't even worry about family. it. <laughs> and it's like, you're kind of like, okay. But, Dude. and I, I love that the end of this movie, they just directly call it out where the girl says, what about our relationship? He looks back at her and just says, fuck that. And yeah. just gets in anyway. Like he's like, this is far beyond that. <laughs> yeah. This is something, this is only yeah. once in a lifetime kind of experience, Yeah, man. <laughs> I mean, like, that is one of those things I absolutely loved about it. Yeah. Um, I'm curious if there was anything else with this one that, like, you you kind of had that you wanted to point out with it or... No. Anything else that you wanted to kind of talk about with it? I mean, it, it's, a, it's a movie that I highly recommend to people, but it's also interesting in that it's hard to really talk about this movie without just saying... All of the best lines. Yep. Talking about all of the best music. Yeah, cool. All this, yeah. And and talking a little bit about the the production, I guess, to a degree, mm -hmm. um, which it did have a heated production because, of course, Harry Dean Stanton and Alex Cox had a rough time with each other. Mm -hmm. Alex Cox, in general, had a rough time. It seems like with this movie, but it was the first time director. Mm -hmm. um, he had one of the great cinematographers, Robbie Mueller, doing the photography. Who. Um, it's interesting because the same year this came out, 1984, was also the year of Paris, Texas, which Robbie Mueller also shot a favorite of ours. Yeah. That featured Harry Dean and yes. Dean Stockwell, yep. who's in Legend of Billy Jean. So yeah. this is kind of fascinating <laughs> little thing there. But um, Robbie Mueller was a guy who refused to shoot inserts. He would only do, he was like, no, like the camera, each, each moment is a composition, a frame. And I think it's one of the things that adds that kind of jagged quality of the movie is mm -hmm. that there's a sense of trying to, there's a guy who's making beautiful, perfect compositions. And then there's a need also for begrudging inserts of things like, you know, when Cy Richardson and him are in the car and Cy Richardson throws the package out the window and then it cuts the insert of the car running over it. You see all the money that was in there. Mm -hmm. So they could have just kept the package. Yep. They would have just opened it. They would have found, you know, like six grand or something in there. Yeah. Um, but then also he had a rough time with Harry Dean Stanton. You know, he, Alex Cox said that he felt that Harry Dean was a dangerous individual, that he had a rough time with him. And he eventually kind of wrote him out of some of the scenes. The scene with Cy Richardson and um, uh, Emilio Estevez going to the house that he pointed out earlier, that was originally supposed to be 
Harry Dean Stanton. Mm-hmm. And he was like, yeah, he was just tired of working with him. He wanted to fire him mm-hmm. and, you know, had a rough time with him. So I, outside of that, it's one of those interesting movies where it's sort of like there's a lot in the movie. The movie is saying a lot of stuff, but it's hard to really actually quantify and talk about a lot of it without just going through all of the lines you know, yeah, that you right. love the most. You're absolutely right. <laughs> but um, if there are no final thoughts, I guess we'll move on to Legend of Billy Jean. Yeah. Awesome. Okay, and now we have um, The Legend of Billy Jean. Um, it was a movie made in 1985. Um, and that is also one of those coming of age stories that we kind of wanted to check out also alongside Repo Man and Licorice Pizza. Yep. So um, it was released in July 19, 1985. The director is Matthew Robbins, who also um, collaborated with a few directors like George Lucas um, Steven Spielberg, like on the films of like the Sugarland Express and yep. Close Encounters of the Third Kind and Jaws. Yeah. Um, so it's pretty um, cool too because he also worked with um, Guillermo del Toro, mm-hmm. um, writing his um, music, uh, writing his films for Mimic and Crimson Peak. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was pretty um, cool and interesting. Um, the music is by a man named Craig Craig Saffin. Mm-hmm. And it was, um, the box office was like 31 million. So I wonder around that time, was that considered good depending on how it was made? Because it's not really listed, you know, like the budget for that one. Yeah. No, so it was actually 3.1 million it was made in the box office, which is really weird because that's really low. It is, yeah. I think it was, I think from, from what I kind of found on the movie, a little bit just kind of looking it up um which i I didn't do like a whole lot of research on this one before we were going to talk about it but from the little bit that i found i mean it didn't really seem like this movie was a success on any front Mm -mm, not at all and in that way it just kind of feels like this kind of wonderful hidden gem which is kind of most of matthew robbins career yeah you know like outside of uh his kind of collaborations you know i mean like of course with Guillermo del toro he also um wrote the recent Pinocchio movie yeah. that's about to come out. And uh, weirdly, co-wrote, don't, do you remember that movie, Don't Be Afraid of the Dark, the remake yes, that they I did actually, together? Yeah, yeah, I actually remember that, that one. That was interesting. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, like it didn't really seem like this one was really much of like a success. Like, critically, it wasn't really no. a huge success. I mean, I think most critics kind of brush it off as being like, it's like another 80s yeah. girl movie. Yeah, which I actually found some very interesting like parts of the movie that really is relevant of of the things that we are going through and the things that we talk about today. Uh-huh. So it's still very much alive, but it just didn't get a lot no. of um, viewership. It just didn't get a lot of play on that one. But it was written by um, Lawrence Connor and Mark Rosenthal. Um, which were, um, they were kind of like a duo, I think. Yeah. They were like writing partners like a, yeah. for various, uh, films and, and stuff like that. So that was kind of pretty interesting because 
you don't meet too many, you know, like partnerships in that nowadays. But yeah, like especially this is extensive as theirs because it, I think that they work together for like a really, really, really long time. Yes, and some of the things under Lawrence Connor's belt is um, he was actually he wrote for the television um, TV show The Sopranos. Mm-hmm. So that was pretty, like, and um, Boardwalk Empire. Yeah. So that yeah. was pretty interesting. Um, and then they did a, and I think uh, The Legend of Billie Jean was actually Mark Rosenthal's, like, one of his first films that he oh, ever okay. actually kind of wrote on. So okay. it was, like, his first screenwriting credit. Um, so were they still, a, like, a duo when he was doing Sopranos and and boardwalk or was that like by that point where they no longer really well i don't know if it's that they're no longer working but i think uh, at that point they were just doing their own separate projects okay, gotcha. so i don't know if they ever just did not want to work together i just think it was just yeah. a part where you just kind of go off and do your own yeah. thing and so i think at that time they were doing things like that so um but it was um pretty interesting uh also we the cast um it helen slater she was billy <laughs> jean uh, Keith Gordon was Lloyd. Yeah. Christian Slater was Binks. Yep. <laughs> Dean Stockwell was Maldar, but he was like. He was like. Uh, Lu- no, he was work running for like Attorney was, General. Yeah, he was a DA running yeah, for Attorney, Attorney General. General. And he was Keith Gordon's dad in the in the story. Yes, and I don't know how you pronounce this last. Peter Coyote. Coyote. Okay, yeah. he was Lieutenant uh, Ringwall, so he was the one. Chasing after them throughout yeah. the entire movie, which he's always usually plays he, that. He's really good at playing like the the authority figure chasing the kids. Yeah, <laughs> and then Richard Bradford was Pyatt, who was great in this. Movie. Yes, he unbelievable was. performance. I like one of the sleaziest, yeah, just grimiest dudes. Like, oh, he was wonderful in this. And then um, Martha Gaiman, she was Ophelia. Yep. Yardley Smith is Putter, which she's also the Lisa. voice of Lisa from <laughs> Simpsons. Um, but it was um, it was a pretty cool cast, and yeah. one of the things I was interested in because there isn't a lot on the film, and it wasn't widely viewed. Yeah, I wanted to know the like how things were received, like what was the reception, you know, what did some of the critics, you yeah. know, the film yeah. critics had to say. And I got one from um, a gentleman named Jay Boyer at the time of their Orlando Sentinel. Uh He was, um, he states like one reason that the sections of the movies are effective is that Helen Slater has enough style and presence to be believable as a young woman who is taking, who is taken for a modern, you know, Joan of Arc. Mm -hmm. And Billie Jean, she's got the clear eyes of a dreamer and the toughness of a winner, which I really always love that part of it. Mm -hmm. Like, she has the clear eyes of a dreamer. Yeah. I love that. I don't know why. And the toughness yeah. of a winner. I love that yeah. that part of it, that he states that. I mean, there was also some not-so-good reviews yeah. that kind of, like, <laughs> got think... me into this, like, heated debate with myself. <laughs> uh, the great Janet Maslin. Yes. Like, it just got me into such a heated debate with myself. Like, I was just like, what is she talking about? Yeah. Because the way she explains and describes what the movie is about, I feel like doesn't say enough. Like yeah. it doesn't tell you enough about the story yeah. 
to call it bad, mm-hmm. but like she doesn't, she didn't have such, she didn't have like good things to say about this movie <laughs> at all. But I didn't think she even explained it enough or described it enough in what she was writing to even give such a bad review. I think when I look at Janet Maslin's review, what I see is somebody who five to ten minutes into the movie wrote the review. Yeah, I see somebody who really from the jump did not connect with this movie. Yeah, did not really care about it or and you know there there is that element of of critics where it's kind of they have the movies that they're excited to get behind and then they have the movies that they you know you have to it's an assignment mm-hmm. you know you have to be there to review this movie mm-hmm. and this one definitely and i think you know i've heard a lot of critics say that when they're walking into a movie and it is kind of more of like an assigned thing it's not a filmmaker that they're mm-hmm. really looking to get behind um that they oftentimes do walk in hoping for something that's going to catch their eye, but they do often walk in, I think, a, a little kind of um, like, oh boy, I got to see this today. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, which makes those movies that do catch their eye like extra special mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. But this was not one for Janet Baslin. No. She did not like this movie. You could tell that she was about 10 minutes into it, which is kind of like, I don't care about what happens with the rest of this movie. Yeah. I'm ready to get out of here. I got a lunch date at 11. Yeah. <laughs> kind of but thing. it was so crazy because there was so much going on in the movie that yeah. really is very prevalent today. Like there was some things where Billie Jean actually had to deal with this man kind of like forcing himself onto her. She's like yeah. a what, 16, 17 year old girl. Yeah. And he's like forcing himself onto her. Yeah. And because she comes from the wrong side of the tracks and he's, you know, known in the community and he's a business owner. So that makes him, you know, come from a little bit of money. Right. Yeah. So he's allowed or now he's somehow has the right to kind of make up all these lies because he feels like no one would believe her. I mean, she's from the wrong side of the tracks. Yeah. And I'm like, because somebody's from the wrong side of the tracks, that makes them like somehow not believable. Yeah. So you get to lie and say anything you want just to be a crummy person. Yeah. So that was a lot of that going on. Um, I found it interesting because as a big sister, you know, yeah. that's, you know, that. That's what I grew up knowing is yeah. being a big sister. Like that's who I am. So I was very protective yeah. of my younger siblings, yeah. just like Billie Jean was of Binks. Yeah. So when she went to the shop, it all started from a man trying to force himself on her just because she was a pretty girl. Yeah. And all she wanted to do was yeah. just get enough money to fix her brother's bike. Yeah. And I, it set this whole chain of events off. Yeah. I guess one of the things about this movie for you know, the people listening is that like, I don't really feel like a lot of people have seen this movie. Yeah. So I guess like kind of the the thing is, you know, like in terms of the story, it is about this young girl, like you said, she's Mm -hmm. her, her brother is getting kind of bullied. Yep. These kids like, uh, uh, smash up his moped. Mm -hmm. He wants it fixed. Billie Jean goes and asks for the money. From the father of the boy who, you know, smashes in like, Tears up the bike. The ever-brilliant Richard Bradford. Yes. (laughs) She's asking Richard Bradford for the money. Richard Bradford uh, essentially gives her $50 and says... Pay it off. We'll pay it off. We'll We'll get on a payment plan. An installment plan. Every time you come up here and, and... you know, do the dirty deeds with me. Yep. I'll give you a little, I'll dole out a little bit more so you can get your brother's bike fixed. Yep. And she, um, uh, 
the other kids, uh, Christian Slater and, and uh, Yardley Smith, run into the the. Uh, no, it's the other girl. It, it was here? Ophelia. Leo's Ophelia. It, yeah, um, runs into the uh, convenience store and. She, well, it's one of those souvenir shops that you go to on the beach. You know, like when you're right. in like Tybee Island yeah. or somewhere, and you go into yeah. those souvenir shops. Like any, that's what any, yeah, beach town. Yeah, pretty much any beach town has. And. Um, uh, Christian Slater has found a gun in yeah. the cash register. Yeah. Uh, accidentally shoots Richard Bradford. Doesn't shoot him far enough down. If he was a little bit further down, he could have <laughs> got him like in the heart or in the lung. Oh no! And kind of taken care of it right there. Um, and then they run away. And as they after they run away, she becomes Billie Jean becomes kind of a media sensation. sensation. Yeah. And. Um, Richard Bradford's character starts to lie about what she did. While at the same time selling her face <laughs> on his merchandise. That's what yeah. really killed me yeah. Yeah. the entire time was, okay, you're accusing this young woman of being like trying to force your hand and trying to rob your store and do all this stuff. But yet you have the gall to like put her face on all your merchandise and sell it. Yeah. Like that, it doesn't even like match to me. Like, how did she rob your store? But now you also have the right to put her face on all your merchandise yeah. and sell it. Yep. So that makes no sense. But no. okay, people <laughs> just want things to make sense where they don't. But yep. and uh, so then, of course, she uh, through all of this at one point is in Keith Gordon's house, yeah. Um, which we'll get into that whole thing later, yeah. Uh, gets into Keith Gordon, is in Keith Gordon's house, sees. Uh, these news reports and decides that she and and also sees um, some footage of Gene Seberg playing uh, Joan of Arc mm -hmm. and decides that she is going to cut her hair yep. and take on the Joan of Arc kind of image yeah. and go and clear her name and get her damn six hundred eight dollars. Yeah, finally, this was a war, man. Yeah, this it was. was a war. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And it, it was like, I, it's one of those things where like watching it was kind of like, wow, I was like, this is actually a really well constructed story. Yeah. I mean, it really had a lot to say. Yeah. And it also tells us how we view media in a way too, because think about it. As soon as her name and face was like plastered in the newspaper, no one really thought about the story much. Yeah. Right. Remember, because people started going to the town she was from and actually purchasing like the merchandise that had all her, her face on it. Like yeah. they were purchasing and going Billy Jean, but no one really knew what had even transpired that day that yeah. caused this whole rift. Yeah. Um, all they cared about was that she was now a local celebrity. Yeah. So that really plays into much how we view media today yeah. is that we never like, we never try to find the, the full story or, yeah. or, find out truth in it yeah we just see somebody get popular and we're like yeah we're screaming yeah. their names and we're just but i'm like why yeah first yeah. figure out why what yeah. have they done <laughs> and i i think it was also a very it's an interesting movie to go back to right now just because of the um the kind of media portrayal of a he said she said event yep dealing with a victim and an offender yep and I thought that that was very, very interesting watching 
you know, in these very simplistic terms of an 80s movie, mm-hmm. you know, like, and I don't say that in any kind of a negative way, mm-hmm. but it just, you know, it, on in very, very basic yeah. kind of terms, talking about a um, an offender capitalizing off of his victim. Yep. And that was one of the things I found very interesting with some of the stuff that has been going on now and some of the conversations that are being had mm-hmm. and some of the debates that are being had about certain things that are you know, very present in the media right now that, you know, this movie was such a naked portrayal yeah. of that. Yeah. And I, I thought that that was actually really, really incredible to get yeah. back to and find. So it's still, even though it has a eighties, like yeah. full, like, you know, visual and tone to it. Like yeah. it still does. It deals with a lot of things that we're still dealing and fighting with today Yeah, is people being able to capitalize off their victims, you yeah. know, like, how does that work? But, yeah. um, but it's so, it was great in the journey she took because there comes a point too, where I sort of realized like, not only is she just cutting her hair to be like the Joan of Arc, but it was also no more about being pretty. You get what I'm saying? It's just, it was just about being real. Yeah. It was no longer about being pretty. And I think that was part of the purpose of like cutting her hair is so people could take her serious. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of times if we if we just see, even today, if we just see a pretty face, you just yeah. tend to kind of look at them and go, uh, like they have nothing to say. As if only yeah. their, like, their features or their attributes, like physical attributes matter to people. Yeah. As if they don't have like a mind and a thought process of their own. Absolutely. So I think part of that process too was her shedding that beauty. Mm-hmm. Like, she had to cut her hair. Because what do most people think about short hair? Yeah. Like, it's not even, like, me trying to be funny. It's yeah. most times when you see a, a young woman with short hair, yes, most times they look good with it, right? Yeah. But the moment you see a female with short hair, the first thing you start thinking of is kind of in a masculine way, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I think that was the purpose of it. It was kind of to step more on a podium and go, sure. I'm just not a girl. I'm not just this. I'm trying to be more. I want you to really hear me instead of just always looking at me. Now, the irony to me in this from a male perspective was that when Helen Slater cut her hair, she got way hotter to me. So that was the irony. Which, like I said, some of that is true. Like, some people feel that way. But on average, most of the things like short hair for women is like, you know, people have that kind of. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, No, you're absolutely right. And and that was just like the humorous irony to me when I saw her <laughs> step out with the short hair and the cool like. Uh, and she vest. was no more dressing like she was on the beach because no. remember in the beginning yeah, she was, she was wearing these like little a, crop tops and yeah. crop tanks and really short shorts. Yeah. And by the end, no, she had on like jeans and like a torn jacket and yeah. like you get what I'm saying so she had to change her image just mm-hmm. to be taken serious and when she first shows up to do that video she almost looks like she's about to go into like the rollerball arena yeah it, she... it like rollerball. <laughs> but that was the time of rollerball was, though. Yeah. so <laughs> that yeah that 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 matched perfectly with that but it was just a really I think profound and interesting story it's like if you go deeper than you know the surface uh-huh then you see that it was so much more than about this 80 style who was, you know, this 80 style that this girl was attractive and she attracted the wrong kind of attention. Yeah. Per, you know, <laughs> Janet Jan Maslin. <laughs> um, but she forgets that the girl actually was attractive in a universal mm. way where even nice guys were attracted to her. Remember the 
how she came across when yeah, she entered with into Keith Gordon, with yeah. Keith Gordon. Like he was actually attracted to him, and he was a actually he was an actual nice guy. Yeah. So it wasn't just about her attracting the wrong attention. It was just about the wrong guys thinking they were entitled to her, in my opinion. Yeah. So I felt more of that than her just attracting the wrong attention. She was just a pretty young girl. I mean, yeah. what can you do to change yeah. that? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I like that she tried to do something about it yeah. by like cutting her hair and yeah. putting on the cutoff jacket and the jeans and the combat boots. And yeah. she just did something about it. So she was just like, so all you hear is my voice. Yeah. And I like how she just created this movement Mm -hmm. where all the girls were like cutting their hair and putting in the one earring in their ear. (laughs) And so she just created, to me, she created a way where you felt more empowered. I think Mm -hmm. it was definitely a coming of age for young women because you felt very empowered by someone was like, okay, I don't have to take this. Mm -hmm. Who says I have to be silent just because you've decided you wanted me to? Because you're a grown up. Not only are you a grown up, but like you're kind of prominent in our community because yeah. you're a business owner but because of that i i'm i'm from the trailer tracks i'm from the wrong side of the tracks mm-hmm. and because of that you get to lie yeah. and you get to use and take advantage of me so i really love that story like yeah. i think it came out beautifully yeah I, th- I do too um i am curious because for me this was a movie that like when i when i saw it for the first time with you like the the main thing that I realized that I knew was the Rebel Yell sequence in the mall. Yes. And past that, I really didn't know the movie. So like, how did you end up finding this one? Because this was one of those movies that the first time you ever brought this up to me, I was like, I have no idea what the hell you're talking about. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I really didn't know this yes. one, so I'm curious how you found this one. But did you remember? I actually had forgotten the name of the movie. Uh-huh. But you remember I told you, I said, Helen Slater plays in there. Uh-huh. Oh, so did Christian Slater. And at the time, I thought they were actual... They were like yeah. siblings. Like yeah. I thought they were brother and sister. Yeah. But like they weren't brother and sister. They yeah. weren't siblings at all. They're actually there's no relation. Yeah. But at the time I just kept remembering because it was a movie that I would like wake up in the middle of the night and you know how you like can't get back to sleep. Yeah. When I was a teenager and I would like turn on the TV. Yeah. And on TBS there was this <laughs> this movie playing. And I over throughout the years I would just I, I would never remember the name. Uh-huh. And I remember one day bringing it up to you and I was like, what is the name yeah. of that movie? I was like, is this movie that came on TBS? It has Helen Slater, Christian Slater. And I was telling you all these things and then I remember you kind of researching and looking it up for me yeah. actually. And that's when you told me it was The Legend of Billie Jean. And then I was like, was it that? And then we started scrolling through everything and I saw the picture I was like, yes, that's yeah. it. And I remember you you actually end up buying yeah, I found the, the DVD for me. Yeah, so, I, yeah. When I was uh, I went to California for a good friend of mine's graduation, mm-hmm. and I had a day that I knew I was going to be free, and I went to, um, actually I think it was before his graduation. I think it was when I went out there for my birthday, but it was no, one. Of, it, it was, was either. It or. was after. It, it was, was after. It was after. Yeah. Okay, so it was when I went out there for his graduation. I knew that we had a day free, so. Um, me and my uh, buddy who went out there with me went to Amoeba Music. Mm-hmm. And I said, like, what's a movie that you can't find anywhere? Kind of as just like, a, you know, like, it's like one of those wonderful, like, for anybody on the East Coast, especially in the Southeast, it's like a magic trick that you get to pull. Where you say, like, name a movie, any movie. And then you yeah. walk into Amoeba and you find, like, ten copies of it. Yeah. Because at that point, we really only had one video store still in Atlanta 
where you could purchase yeah. movies, which was Movie Stop. And movie Stop, which we would we would make that like our Friday yeah. night, like every Hangout. Friday. Yeah, yeah we for would. all the way up until it closed. Yeah, all the way until it closed. And now all we really have left is Videodrome, which is doing tremendous work, mm-hmm. you know, um, uh, kind of keeping video rental alive and yeah. well. Um, but past that, we don't really have anything like that. So it was, it's always fun going to Amoeba and talking to somebody from here and saying, like, what's a movie you love? Yeah. And you were like Legend of Billy Jean. And I went and I found a copy yeah. of it there and brought it back. Because I couldn't find it anywhere at the time. No. I, even, I remember even, it may be there now. Yeah. But I remember even searching on um, Amazon. Yeah. And you know how the... The, like it would come up yeah. but there was like no like it would tell you like it was like there was no seller to it so yeah. it would show the dvd but like there was no way to purchase it yeah and e- even the copy we have we realized when we put it in the other day is a bootleg copy yeah it's a it's just like a burned, it was burned yeah, <laughs> yeah. Copy that the dvd menu literally has play movie or play movie with commentary, commentary. and it doesn't even have an actual menu screen Home at screen, all nothing. like yeah yeah, it's, 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 yeah. So we know we got a bootleg version, yeah. but I'm just still happy that I own it. Yeah. Because, yeah. I don't know, it was such a staple when I was growing up for a teenager because it was just like, yeah, like yeah. it made me, yeah. like really think, it empowered me and it really made me think like, okay, yeah, fight for what's right, man. Yeah. Fight for what you believe. Fight for, you know. Yeah. So when I'm... You're invincible. I know. Yeah, that's, a little... that's what Pat Benatar told yes. me. Yes. <laughs> the 80s music in that was awesome. Yeah. yeah. Well, because I'm an 80s baby anyway. So I think, knowing me, I think I dig a lot of stuff from the 80s because <laughs> I'm an 80s baby. Yeah. But um, yeah, so just being able to like have you get that for me and now that I own it. So I get to put it in every time I want to kind of just yeah. get a little nostalgic. Yeah. <laughs> So I find that pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely, um, it's a movie that really surprised me. Yeah. Like, going back to it. Mm-hmm. Because I don't really have much relationship with this movie in any way. No. So it really was kind of um, a movie that I had a relationship with Repo Man, a movie you had a relationship with this one. And uh, going back to it, I was, I was really, really impressed as I was sitting there watching it and really kind of taking it in this time. Mm-hmm. And um, I think the previous times we'd watched it, I enjoyed it, but it was definitely kind of like, okay, yeah, like you know, it's it's all the standard kind of '80s tropes. Watching mm-hmm. it this time, I was like, it kind of isn't, which is one of the things that really impressed me with it. Yeah, is that um, you know, for me, like I don't always really respond to a lot of '80s films. Like you know, you're. A John Hughes connoisseur. Yeah, I have to ask you questions about John Hughes stuff because I don't always know mm-hmm. a lot of the John Hughes. Which we'll be doing. Like, yeah, we'll have to do a John yeah. Hughes yeah. <laughs> celebration at some point. <laughs> um, but I mean, as you know from knowing me, like the, a lot of my favorite John Hughes stuff, even is kind of the stuff that leans away mm-hmm. from his more, kind of, you know, like planes, trains, and automobiles. Yeah, and or even Uncle Buck. Buck you know, yeah. like those kind of movies that kind of lean away from the kind of stand. I think the only one that he had that kind of falls into that kind of more standard John Hughes category was Ferris Bueller. Yeah. And of course I mm-hmm. can watch that movie on a loop. Yeah. But as I think most people can, <laughs> but, um, um, watching this time, I kind of realized it was like, it's really not your standard eighties movie. This movie has a lot more on its mind. Yeah. It's doing a lot more. 
um, the filmmaking in particular is unbelievable in this movie. You yeah. know, like, and uh, I was saying, first of all, I didn't remember it being as violent as it was. Yeah. Which, of course, I... I know because people are just shooting. People are just shooting. Uh, when they you first see Christian Slater after he's been beat up, like he looks like he really got beat up. Yeah, like, he absolutely. Yeah, he did. <laughs> he got his ass beat. Um, and you can, it's like it was really, really uh, bizarre. Like you know, seeing that it did lean into yeah. a lot of violence, and then they did. shot him later. And, yeah, and like later, uh, Christian Slater gets shot. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of people get shot and beat up in this movie. (laughs) And like, but there there was, um, but the violence also in the movie, it's not shy. It's not like, you know, oh, somebody gets shot and they just kind of fall over. Or there's just like a squib that goes off, but there's no blood to it. Mm -hmm. No, it's like, it's a very bloody film. Not like grotesque, you know, like over, yeah. I couldn't take it. It It's not a gruelingly violent film. It's not I Saw the Devil. No, definitely not. But it is, um, it is a surprisingly violent and and you know semi gory movie. Which yeah, because it me. also deals with things in a political aspect too, mm-hmm. right? And it also deals with the fact how we can easily let someone else tell us what we should be feeling and thinking. Because remember, even um, Robert Bradford's. Uh, What's his name? Mr. Pyatt? Yeah, yeah. Even in his thing, remember because um, Dean Stockwell was was running, Richard Bradford, so sorry, I said Robert, but um, Richard Bradford, even when um, Dean Stockwell was uh, running Mm -hmm. for attorney general, remember, for that district, like, he let him know, like, if you don't do something about these, you know, hoodlums and these Mm -hmm. kids running around here just causing havoc and all this stuff, like, you won't be you know, you won't be yeah. elected. Like, yeah. we won't vote for you. Yeah. And that played a lot into how they responded to Binks later. That's how he ended up shot. Yeah. Because they start, like, Dean Stockwell literally got, like, troops. He got, like, sniper guys yeah. out there for yeah. children, for yeah. children, man. Yeah. So it, it was it was really weird to see that kind of um, realization and that harshness that it brought to it. It was like, yeah. you got these sniper guys, like, these... <laughs> These like SWAT kind of guys, man, yeah, to take they, down they a kid. In, yeah, military cavalry. Yeah, yeah, to take down children. Yeah, like really. So yeah. that's what I mean. It. I mean, it was real. There was it, a lot of realness about it. It was, and you know, like that was also one of the interesting things to me is that of the movies that have, and we talked about Lake Placid on the last one, you mm-hmm. know, and kind of the Jaws relationship to that. Of it, and it didn't. That movie didn't necessarily have this character, but. Of all of the Jaws ripoffs yeah. that have a version of the mayor character. Yeah. Now, this movie definitely is not a Jaws ripoff, but it definitely does rip off the idea of that mayor character. This yeah. one did it the best. Yeah. This one did it yes, almost it did. as well as Jaws, if not as well yeah, as Jaws. You're and right. I attribute a large portion of that to the performances of Richard Bradford and Dean Stockwell and Peter yes. Coyote. And, you know, Peter Coyote even being, like, a kind of proto, kind of uh, a Brody character yeah. in some ways. And, yeah. that, you know, he's trying to control the mayhem on the beach. Yeah. You know, and of all of the movies that kind of did their own ripoffs of this, in my opinion, this one kind of did it the best with that, yeah, those central because, characters yeah. and their whole thing. I mean, because just like you mentioned with Jaws, like, mm-hmm. 
how the mayor is doing. Remember, he decided to listen to all the people, even though they weren't right. You know, sometimes you want to listen to the people that need to vote you in office, right? And you yeah. don't give them what you want, then you won't be voted in. Yeah. But sometimes you also got to remember your integrity and your yeah. character, too. Yep. So it's like, if someone's leading you the wrong way, why go? Yeah. And I feel like that's part of the the um, new to nuance that those characters kind of brought to life with that kind of yeah. uh, political role was yeah, that nuance of like still listening to people, even when they weren't always leading you right. Mm -hmm. You're still listening to people. And don't we have a lot of that going yeah. on today? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, I mean, that's why I said it. it's very prevalent for today. Yeah. So I think it meant a lot to get such a terrible review that it's just an 80s style movie. <laughs> yeah, and like, you know, it, in some ways it's like, I, I don't agree with that assessment, but from previous viewings, I understand how it can very quickly be pushed off as that. Yeah. Because if you're not really sitting down with intention to watch this movie, it it is very easily... So then why critique it? it... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm just like I, I, that. I think there's a little bit of an assignment involved. With that. I know, but like, yeah, um, I'm just saying, don't you supposed to do any job with what, you know, bring I, your full attention there? So I'm just saying, there's jobs I don't like, <laughs> but I still got to bring yeah. everything I have to it so it can, I can still give it the best, yeah. like, you know, so I can give it the best outcome that it could possibly get. So Absolutely. And I, I think, you know, going back to one of the things I realized, I was like, I think even from an audience perspective, I see kind of why it might not have really struck with audiences at the time yeah. is because if you're, if you're not really paying attention to this movie, it does, you can very quickly just kind of push it off as like, ah, it's another, yeah, it, it's another one of these movies, yeah. you know, in big one of air those. quotes. Yeah. yeah. But, like, if you actually sit down and pay attention to it, you find a lot of incredible stuff in this movie. Yeah. Like, and it, you know, from the kind of social aspects of the movie, but then also just in the filmmaking itself, uh -huh. it is, Matthew Robbins is a really, really smart yeah. director and really good director. I mean, you know, in the, in the beginning, there's the, the scene um, when uh, Richard Bradford takes her upstairs. Yeah. And is you know leaning into he's about to rape her yeah and he walks her over to this little section where there's like a hole cut out of the ceiling mm -hmm. and there's a fan there that's going mm -hmm. and so it's this light that is kind of twitching on top of them and i was watching i seen it, i was like this is so beautiful like yeah. the way that he shot that which is so incredible and i was sitting there looking i was like ah, that, that. Um, and then it has that kind of uh what is it i don't i don't want to call it like it has this dreamy kind of look to it anyway. It does. Especially it, most of like the beach scenes and like when the yeah. sun is like really shining. It's so funny. It has this such this dreamy it's, kind of It's a little hazy. Yeah. It, it's not a um it's a little hazy. Almost like heat. You know yeah. that heat waves? Because it's so yeah. hot. It yeah. gives it that like you can feel the heat waves. It does. <laughs> there's there's like kind of a hazy feel to it. There's a sense that there's always a little bit of sweat on the lens. Yeah. Like it's it's a very interesting thing he, he was very intentional with mm -hmm. everything he did in this movie and i think that intention comes up the most when she meets keith gordon like mm -hmm. in in how intentional he was with how he shot the film mm -hmm. keith gordon plays uh dean stockwell's son yeah he was lloyd lloyd mm -hmm. and um he is an asthmatic kid mm -hmm. who's obsessed with makeup effects mm -hmm. uh, uh, like monster movies and masks and stuff mm -hmm. And um, is kind of an isolated rich kid who has like a a 
you know, a slide pulled up to his window so you <laughs> yeah. can water slide down into the family pool. You're yeah. kind of like, I, I live the wrong life. <laughs> but, um, also really quick as a side note, like I'm Keith Gordon. Keith Gordon has actually done some of my, like this one particular movie that mm-hmm. is really incredible, but also like really early in his career before this movie, he was in, um, Bob Fosse's All That Jazz. He was also in Brian De Palma's Dress to Kill. Yeah. But, um, and he, he was also in, uh, do you remember that movie Delivering Milo with Albert Finney and Bridget Fonda and mm-hmm. Anton Yelchin? Um, I'm trying to remember. I don't. He, he actually has a small role in that also. But Keith Gordon actually wrote and directed this World War II movie that, like, nobody has seen. Yeah. But if you ever get a chance to go and see it, like, I highly recommend it. It's called A Midnight Clear. Okay. And it uh, has Peter Berg, Gary Sinise, uh, Kevin Dillon, um, uh, Ethan Hawke has a, a part in there. It's a it's a, the kind of opposite of what you would expect from a World War II movie. It's mm-hmm. not a bunch of battles or anything. It's it's kind of essentially just guys kind of stuck in one spot during the war. And it's an unbelievable movie it is such an incredible film he wrote and directed that Mm -hmm. a little bit later in his career and also um uh directed a a pretty interesting movie with um billy credup and jennifer Connelly called waking the dead okay so like he he's just one of those guys like because he made a midnight clear i was just like i gotta spotlight (laughs) that movie just because it's it's such a special and important movie that i saw at a certain time in my life around the time that i saw repo man actually that's awesome um uh, but it was such a special and important movie in my life that I saw it just the right time. Yeah. That if, if ever I get the chance to recommend it, I do. Yeah. But um, when she meets, when Billie Jean meets Lloyd at that point in the movie, Matthew Robbins does something really, really interesting, which is he decided to lean into this like giallo mm-hmm. lighting. It was very like Dario Argento inspired. Mm-hmm. And I'm sitting there watching it and I'm like, there's no way this sustains. Like it has to be like, oh, okay, I'm going to throw this in for, like, the little horror movie moment because the way he's introduced is he shows up in a werewolf costume. Yeah. She, like, he's one of, like, 60 guys that she knees in the balls. Yeah. And, like, she, like, <laughs> she gives him the knee, he goes down, and then he, like, grabs his inhaler and takes off the mask and is, yeah. like, you know, like, I'm just a regular kind of guy. Yeah. And then she sees his face and she's like, he's kind of cute. Yeah. And, um, but, like, Rather than do what most of their filmmakers would do, which is like, oh, I'm going to flick on the lights and now that whole lighting scheme is done. I did that just to be funny. Mm-hmm. He leans into it. Matthew yeah, Robbins decides yeah. to, all the way down to when they're in the pool, yep. that purple and blue, very, oh, haze, yeah. very Dario Argento inspired lighting exists throughout that. And then he even brings it back. Mm-hmm. Later in the film, when they go to the uh, mini golf place to hide out yeah. and it's pouring rain mm-hmm. uh you know she finds christian slater and he goes like uh, i think you're taking over babysitter or something he has this kind of cute line yeah and then she looks over and he's standing in the doorway yeah and the lighting is actually back on his face yeah from inside of the the place and when i saw that i was like this is incredible like this guy like yeah, really i mean he got his own um it's so funny because he kind of got his own like lighting style like yeah. he got like yeah. it was so um Unique to him. Yeah, That's absolutely. what was so funny. Yeah. It's like, and, and you know how, even though you say it was like dark lighting, right? Yeah. That dark lighting spotlight, it spotlighted him. Yeah, So it absolutely. was so funny that it yeah. was so unique to just his character. And it, it, it tells a lot about that character without you ever having to 
really get too deep into yeah. him. You know, it, it, it did inform me that this kid, because he lives in his house and that his house is lit this way when he's by himself and his dad's not there, this kid's favorite movie is probably Suspiria. Yeah. You know, it's like, that's probably, and he's oh, obsessed Werewolf with, in London. you know, it's, yeah, and he probably loves all of these, uh, you know, kind of horror movies from mm-hmm. that era, but mm-hmm. he, he's probably, as a teenager of about that age, probably leaning really hard into those Italian movies that yeah. he's finding on VHS. Which, by the way, I would like to mention, he wasn't even afraid when they stepped into his home, so I thought no. that was really, like, yeah. he was just kind of like, eh. He's, he's so lonely yeah. that, you know, when other kids are suddenly there. And I know he recognized and knew who she were, yeah. who she was, yeah. and that's why he was unafraid. Yeah. But still hearing something and seeing somebody just step into your house is still kind of weird, but mm-hmm. he actually... There was like no reaction. Yeah. <laughs> so that was kind of funny. Yeah. And um Yeah, I don't know. There there's there's a lot of stuff in this movie that is really, really special. I mean, and one of the other things that you know, you mentioned uh, uh Craig Saffin earlier, uh who did the score. Yeah. That was one of the things I because I'm somebody who I am um I'm not always so taken with eighties music, like mm-hmm. the Pat Benatar I love it. You know, uh, uh side of everything. <laughs> um I usually lean a lot more into like the seventies yeah. kind of stuff, you know, like for me, it's like, you know, James Brown, I mean, uh, James Brown, <laughs> Jackson Brown kicking in and, and Taxi yeah. Driver. Oh yeah. You know, but, um, it's, uh, uh, the one thing I will say though, is that I eat up eighties scores, yeah. you know, by, you know, like the Carpenter stuff, mm-hmm. the Tangerine Dream stuff, Van Gellis. And, and then this one also, like I was listening to, I was like the original score for this movie is just amazing yeah. it is so so good definitely kind of like a a um a gem in its own right yeah um uh, like also kind of blown away that all this was done just kind of over a scooter yeah like the whole entire movie That's exists what I mean. because of Every, a wrecked scooter yes you know and because of a wrecked scooter and i like that yeah. aspect of it that, you know it's something, <laughs> something so, so simple yeah <laughs> started this whole chain of events that led to something so big yeah so yeah yeah it's like uh this was one that i i'm i'm really glad that um you brought this one up because this was one that on my own left to my own devices i wouldn't really revisit this one just yeah. because there's again it's that thing where it's like i think that's one of the reasons why i probably didn't connect with audiences at the time but why it's also a perfect movie to go back and reevaluate yeah because it definitely is not something that on the surface I would ever connect with. Yeah. But then going back and rewatching it, I was like, you know, this is actually like a phenomenal little movie. Like yeah. it's, it's definitely a hidden gem that I think deserves to, to be reevaluated. And yeah. And going back to repo man, just for a second, mm-hmm. is that something that I realized as well that I just sort of forgot to mention is that when I remember really looking, when you asked me like, what did I see or what did I take from it? Or what mm-hmm. did it like, what did I feel in that? It reminded me, you know what I thought it did? It reminded me of weird science, like yeah, another genre, yeah. but, but like a more like darker comedy of yeah, that. Yeah. So I always thought that was funny that it gave this similar like yeah. vibe to like weird science. And you know, the interesting thing about legend Billy Jean versus repo man and bringing repo man back up is, you know, talking about how, and repo man, there's almost that jagged kind of feeling to, yeah. to that movie. That doesn't exist in Le- Legend of Billie Jean. No, this is a doesn't. very polished, definitely very like you know, like Matthew Robbins, the craft that he brings to the movie mm-hmm. is really, really exceptional. Mm-hmm. And it's a very polished, very well done 
very like well-placed, well-crafted film, where it's sort of like there's, there's not an ounce of fat on it. It does everything that it's supposed to do. It doesn't overstay its welcome. Yeah. And it does it all with perfect execution. I, I mean, it's really, really fantastic. Yeah. One of the other things that I was very excited to bring up was um, the cinematographer, Jeffrey Kimball. Okay. And I, I don't know if you know Jeffrey Kimball. You you do know him, even if you don't know him offhand. Okay. But I just wanted to read you his, his list of credits. Because okay. Legend of Billie Jean is actually his debut as a director of photography. Oh, okay. He follows that up with Top Gun. This is oh, in that's order. Funny. <laughs> Top Gun, Beverly Hills Cop 2. Revenge, the Tony Scott one, mm -hmm. Jacob's Ladder, Curly Sue, True Romance, The Specialist, Wild Things, Stigmata, Mission Impossible 2, The Hire, Wind Talkers, Star Trek Nemesis, Paycheck, <laughs> The Big Bounce, Be Cool, Glory Road, Bonneville, uh, Four Christmases, Old Dogs, The Expendables, Valley of the Sun, which I don't know that one, mm -hmm. and The Double. Wow. That's, that was Jeffrey Kimball's career. Yeah. I was like, that's incredible. Yeah, and it all started Dude, from The Legend of Billie Jean. The Legend of Billie Jean was the first one. <laughs> and I see why, you know, talking about like kind of the hazy quality of this movie and the kind of polished mm -hmm. aspects of the cinematography, the the really beautiful lighting that is used throughout this whole entire movie. I mean, even at the end when they light the, the yeah. fair on fire, mm -hmm. that gorgeous lighting of like the glow around everything, yeah. the fact that the, the smoke doesn't blow no across the camera, camera it, at all it does this weird thing where it kind of cascades through at yeah these and weird i wonder intervals. if they just kind of almost like you do a weather pattern yeah where you kind of measure out the direction in which the smoke was going yeah. and so that's where they decided to it feels very controlled like it yeah. feels like they were doing something to like really yeah. control the direction of everything in, in in ways that you don't often see yeah with with um uh scenes like that mm -hmm. where it's like it was very the the use of the smoke was artistic yeah it wasn't really sort of like let's put the camera over here behind the flame and just let the smoke and the flame kind of like yeah go over billy a few times so it looks really cool yeah it didn't ever have none of the shots in this movie ever had that aspect to me of people sitting around going like this looks cool yeah which i think that's my dislike of a lot of 80s movies mm -hmm. is how many times and I can even point to like the certain aspects of even like the breakfast club yeah. and say like, Oh, they kind of put that in there because it looks cool. Yeah. It looks good. Yeah. And you know, he, Matthew Robbins and Jeffrey Kimmel definitely went away from that. Mm -hmm. And it's very interesting because people will accuse Tony Scott of doing the same thing, but I don't really agree with that. I think that Tony Scott was a very concise director who was very intentional with what he did. And it makes total sense that he would have seen the legend of Billy Jean and been like, I want that guy. Yeah. And immediately got him for Top Gun, right. for yeah. Beverly Hills Cop 2, for <laughs> for uh, Revenge in particular. Yeah. Which Revenge kind of uses a lot of the same lighting as this movie when I think about it. And then eventually for True Romance. Mm -hmm. Makes sense why he was one of Tony Scott's guys. Because, you know, especially that early point in the 80s, you know, kind of at the beginning of his career. Because, I mean, you look at this movie and it's so well polished, so well yeah. made, and so well crafted. You were kind of like, yeah, I mean, this, if, if it was just kind of slightly, I would love to see who the short list of directors was for yeah. this. Cause I'm pretty sure Tony Scott was on it. Okay. Like I'm pretty yeah. positive that he was. <laughs> and I'm actually pretty sure seeing the movie that we wouldn't have gotten that much different a movie. Okay. I think we would have gotten 
different actors, which is why I'm glad Matthew Robbins did the movie. Yeah. Because I think he cast this movie so and perfectly. And then he kind of cast like people, the coming up, like the people that were being, like coming up and yeah. being, and that was popular at that time. Yeah. Which is what we do a lot for our own like coming of age stories. Yeah. And then nowadays. So yeah. like, I think that was awesome. I mean, he did exactly what we do now. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And he, he was very smart about it. Like, I think Helen Slater, I don't really know much about, like, I'm not well versed in her career. Mm-hmm. I've seen her in other stuff. Mm-hmm. But I thought she was perfect casting. Yes, Billy she was. Mm-hmm. And it was smart on two levels to cast Christian Slater. Mm-hmm. Because on one level, they actually are a great pair. They have great chemistry yeah. as brother and sister. Mm-hmm. But because they have the same last name, you do immediately assume yep. that they're coming in with a certain level of you already, know, already that being kinship. related. Yeah, and they don't. <laughs> and um, uh, the other thing was you know peter coyote who we've barely really talked about but he yeah. was just phenomenal in this movie phenomenal. i mean we watched um et, ET recently, recently yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he was he was just amazing in this like mm-hmm. he he did such a good job and in particular at the end when he goes to the mini golf place and he's you know kind of calling out to them but then he kind of under his breath at various points is just kind of like you know, please call me, you yeah. know, and all that stuff. And yeah. the way he deals with the kids, the way he, he kind of deals with them one way when he's by himself with them, yeah. he deals with them differently in front because of everybody of else. Because it's of the politics. Because of the politics at all. politics. <laughs> <laughs> and also just, um, there's a sly nature to his performance in this movie where whenever he sees them pull something off, he gets this thin little smile oh, on his yeah, face. Oh yeah, he's always amused. He's always he, amused. He's it's always like, amused and a little yeah, impressed. Yeah, and impressed with it. Yeah, you're right. So I'm just, it's funny. Yeah, and um, you know, all the way down to, I think one of the best moments with him was seeing he's a little impressed while he's chasing him through the mall, mm-hmm. and then he gets up into the garage, and Christian Slater pulls the toy gun on him, yeah. and you see his face change yeah. immediately, like, whoa, okay. Now we're going too far. Yeah, you see that change in him that he, yeah. he just he pulled that off so well. Yeah, so I, I was I was very impressed with this one. Yeah. I really enjoyed going back to it. And I was like, okay, I was like, I have to give this one way more credit than what I have up to this point. Like, awesome. This is a fantastic movie. Awesome man. <laughs> okay, that was the Legend of Billy Jean. Yeah. Up next, I guess we got our uh, our throwback, back. and then uh, we'll be talking a little bit about what our next episode is because it's something totally different. Yeah. Awesome. now time for our throwback so last week i was given the task (laughs) to choose my own throwback yeah and it has to be film prior to the 80s prior to 1980 yeah Yeah, prior to 1980 so i chose one because one of my favorite um directors and writers is uh john cassavetes Um, so I chose Shadows, yep. which was um, made, it actually was written and made in 1957, and a screening came out in 1958. It wasn't real, well received at all. <laughs> like, <laughs> they, he said that out of, out of, after, like, advertising it on the radio station, because mm-hmm. at the time he worked at a radio station, and after advertising it, he said that only 100 people actually showed up for the screen and there were free screenings. Yeah. But he said it was crazy because 
um, out of the hundred people that showed up, it was a six hundred seat theater. Yeah. And most ninety percent of the hundred people. So think about that. Ninety yeah. percent was his family and friends. Yeah. So I just found that was interesting. And he said most of them did not like it. Yeah. They didn't. They they didn't yeah. like it. Take well to it at all. So he kind of had to go back and kind of redo, revise it, and move some things around, and kind of really clean it up. And then it was released, mm-hmm. re-released in nineteen fifty nine. Yeah. So that was my pick. Um. I guess I can tell you a little bit about the film. Um, it said it was a movie that was um, about the race relations during the beat generation in New yeah. York City yeah. at the time. So it was like three black siblings. Um, one, only one was dark skinned, but the other two could actually pass yeah. as white because their skin was so light. Yeah. And you just go through that movie seeing their kind of connections with different people and how people took them on in different race, like how they kind of, especially the light skinned ones, how they kind of fit in with their white friends because their white friends didn't really even know they were black. And then kind of how they also would go in then fit in with their black friends. And so it's just, it's just this story that's about three people that you're just kind of following their lives in the day of. Yeah. So um, I really enjoyed this film. Yeah. I mean, it was great. And it was funny because I read one of the things that John Cassavetti's father said to him. And he said, his father said, it was a pure film, but not a good film. Yeah. And like, I was like, wow, that's kind of like yeah. cool to know that that's what his father said to him. Yeah. But you also understand why too, because it is a pure film. Like it talks a lot about that clashing and how we kind of view other people in those days. And if you were considered closer to white, how more accepted you are, just like the standard beauties of today, mm-hmm. you know? And if you were a darker skin, you were considered more like, eh, like, you know, and you weren't considered as much. And not on top of that, but like Layla, who who is Layla Gordon, she was absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. So she kind of like would go yeah. in between both sides. Yeah. So what did you think of the film? So I love this movie. I this is the John Cassavetes movie that I've. I, I'm a huge, huge. I'm like a student of Cassavetes, yeah. and this is the movie of his I've seen the least. Not because I didn't like it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I'm just always immediately attracted to his Jenna Rollins movies, mm-hmm. and of course, this isn't one of those. So mm-hmm. I, I tend to go back to this one a lot less. But it was nice going back to it because I did. You know, it's pretty, it's one of the things is that it is a movie that um, if you want to make movies, this movie can give you a lot of confidence. It does. And I see why it was such an enormous deal to people like Martin Scorsese, Mm -hmm. to people like Jim Jarmusch, to people like Spike Lee before they made their first films. Mm -hmm. Because if you've ever tried to make a movie before and you don't really have resources or a, a technical crew that can make up for your kind of lack of knowledge mm-hmm. your your movie is going to be amateurish and it's not always charming yeah how amateurish it is exactly and i think that that first screening that he had i've never seen that cut of the movie uh, like i don't uh i'd have to look to see if it actually exists mm-hmm. but um i that's one you know i often s- seek out 
alternate cuts to his movies, but I never really did with this one. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, obviously the big one for me was Killing of a Chinese Bookie, so yeah. that was one that I had a lot of focus on. Um, but I've never really tried to seek out an alternate cut to this movie, but I'm pretty sure if you were to watch it, it would feel like anybody who's ever tried to make a movie's first attempt at making yes. a movie in that there was probably a good basis there and nothing else good about it. Yeah. And it was so, one of the funny facts I also found out about it is that the same man that actually coached the cast a lot and kind uh-huh. of was almost like the acting coach or yeah, the, their teacher. Yeah. They say he, even he walked out on the yeah. movie <laughs> the first time they screened it. So yeah. I was like, that's crazy. You're the one who coached the yeah. actors and you walk out too. <laughs> and, and, you know, I think it's one of those things where it gives you a lot of confidence that this guy who was so desperate, you know, Cassavetes was so desperate to see like a pure film in the words of his own father Mm -hmm. was so desperate to see a pure film that was just about people that he was willing to try and fail and then try again. Mm -hmm. And until he got it right. Mm -hmm. And it was incredible. And of course, within kind of the, um, the, the, nature of having no resources for this movie you actually watch i think the thing that struck me the most watching it this time had less to do with the characters Mm -hmm. and more to do with which often that's why i watch these movies is Mm -hmm. because i get sucked up in these characters Mm -hmm. and um i think this one had less to do this time that i watched it had less to do with that more watching it and realizing that i was watching his style develop Mm-hmm. as the movie went on like as it went on i was like oh like he would go back to certain angles or certain things like when he did faces or then eventually when he did many Moskowitz or a woman under the influence like you see him starting to come into his own mm-hmm. as a director and starting to get confidence with himself yeah and i think that was one of the phenomenal things about going back to it i mean i love the performances i love the story mm-hmm. um it it I have to agree. Like, it's not a very well-executed yeah, movie. but it's a pure film. But it is a pure film. Yeah. Like, it's it's very... What it has to say, it says it very well. Mm-hmm. And the casting in this movie is unbelievable, mm-hmm. which is... I mean, you don't really even have to acknowledge that for a cast of Eddie's film, I feel mm-hmm. like. But it is. It's unbelievable. Um, the, the way that you... And the... I noticed that much how I kind of receiving um receiving like pta movies yeah it reminds me a lot of how i receive in john cassavetti mm-hmm. movies and i think that's one of my similarities of i think why they're some of my favorite directors yeah those and, stories their character dynamics are so like full yeah and it's full of life like i love the dynamic of their characters yeah and that, that's kind of what i was about to say is that like it's a similar to pt anderson like it's a and the movie that we just talked about licorice pizza yeah. it's a it's a little bit of a meandering movie. Yeah. You, you kind of get to just hang out with these people. Mm-hmm. But at a certain point, there is a um, a concise nature to the structure by a certain point of the movie. Mm-hmm. And that's specifically when um, Leela starts going out with these three different men. Yeah. And you see her, how she navigates these three different men. Yeah. And she kind of splits off and almost becomes the the kind of main character of the movie by a certain point. It yeah. starts off very much an ensemble yeah, and then starts to split off. And once it starts to split off, that's when the movie really comes into its own yeah, and really becomes a film. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, leading up to that, it's a very entertaining student project, essentially. Yeah. It's like the student project that you would see that you look at and you go, this guy's going to really go off and do something. Yeah. And But then it has this little pivot when it starts focusing on her and you're just like, this movie is actually actively doing something. Yeah. Yeah. And you're right because for some reason, it's like you can tell that she kind of captures that essence in a way where she ends up becoming the main character. There was something just about her um, that really was striking. Yeah, it was. Uh, We we called it out when we were watching the movie too, but it was Mm -hmm. uh, uh, puts you in the mind of Maya Rudolph when you see her. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the things that I, I thought was really funny about having this paired with licorice pizzas because mm-hmm. definitely when I was looking at Leela, I was like, oh, wow, that's, she really does favor Maya Rudolph a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Which it's, you know what it also reminds me similar of uh, is The Imitation of Life. Uh-huh. Which came out the same year. Yeah. In 1959. Yeah. yeah. So I just thought that was very interesting. It gives me like similar vibes. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I love this one. I thought this was a great pick and it, it was a, it was a great excuse to go back and watch a Cassavetes movie. Yeah. When, you know, there's not really one on the docket for anything coming up, yeah. you know, like in, in the near future. Of course. So getting the excuse to just sit down and watch some Cassavetes is yeah. always welcome. And I, I really enjoyed going back to it. So I thought it was, I thought it was fantastic. Okay. Um, so I guess, so on the next episode, we're not going to have a throwback rack. No, we're not. So we're not going to really put one out this time, but, um, on the episode after the next one, we'll explain in a moment here why that's uh, the case because the next episode is going to be a totally different structure than yeah. what we've done up to this point. So yeah, yeah, let's uh, let's kind of get into that. All right, so that's our episode for today, uh, covering Licorice Pizza, Legend of Billy Jean, and Repo Man. Any final thoughts? No, I just thought we chose amazing films and movies this time around to talk about and kind of correlated to uh, Licorice Pizza. And mm-hmm. I thought that was, I thought those were good choices. Yeah. So because of that, I'm, I'm fully satisfied, man. I'm I, not, agree. I I'm, I'm, I'm no longer hungry. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I completely agree. There's one thing that I do want to bring up because I was kind of skirting around it. I was trying to kind of ignore it, mm-hmm. and but I don't really think it's fair to Alex Cox to ignore a movie of his that is a big deal when you talk about the punk ethos of Repo Man, mm-hmm. which is Sid and Nancy. And, I mean, it, it's an important movie, and it's a movie that there's a lot of controversy around it, so we're not even going to get into it. <laughs> um, you know... Johnny Rotten doesn't like the movie. I mean, you can, there's a lot you can say about it, but like, and it's its own conversation unto itself. It did make me think that there is a, uh, potential show that could be done, potential episode that could be done about movies that maybe once struck you or should strike you that just never did. Got you. That would be a good one, actually. And Sid and Nancy would be on my list. Okay. Because Sid and Nancy, there was probably a time in my life where I kind of liked that movie. 
but overall as as the years have gone on and specifically once I got into kind of my 20s I really don't like biopics mm-hmm. I, I don't really care about biopics I, I think that they're yeah. sort of irritating <laughs> and look I mean Gary Oldman is phenomenal as Sid Vicious there, there's a lot of things about Sid and Nancy that are very interesting to talk about and I did technically see that movie before Repo Man. Okay. And at the time when I saw it, I probably liked it a lot more than what I do now. And I I honestly think back at it, and I can't remember past simply quoting Gary Oldman and walking around with a few friends of mine just screaming, Nancy! And like... <laughs> And like when, you know, certain people who've seen that movie would hear that and it's like, that's not even really all that funny because there's heroin involved and everything. It's like, you know, but like that was kind of what I took out of the movie was his performance and sort of nothing else. Oh, okay. And then as time has gone on, that's sort of why I no longer like biopics all that much is because, you know, when Walk the Line came out, I thought it was a great movie. As time has gone on, I realized all I really took away from the movie were the performances, not the film itself. Yeah. And that was sort of my issue with Sid and Nancy. And that's sort of why I didn't really mention it. I also, as the years have gone on, just don't like that movie. (laughs) (laughs) But that's its own thing. But, like, yeah, I think that um, I would just feel bad about ending this episode without ever having mentioned that film. Okay. I mean, I've never seen it. It, I think this is one of the reasons why I think it would be worth doing like an episode of like movies that should have done something for me because it's in the milieu of films that I, the kinds of films that I like. It just simply didn't. Well, I mean, at one point, right, though, because you said it did mm-hmm. at first and now years later you look back on it. So at one point it did. I, You know, the thing that I wish that I... I wish I had written down how I felt about movies when I was at a certain age, Mm -hmm. because that didn't start until much later. I wish I would have written down how I felt about that movie when I first saw it, so that I could go back and look at that now and go like, oh, so I really did love it on first viewing. Because mostly what I remember was just being captivated by Gary Oldman. Yeah. And I don't really remember how I felt about the movie as a whole at this point. Okay. But... I'll never take away the fact that I quoted Gary Oldman in that movie for, you know, a few years after I saw it. I just don't know how I really feel about it now. Okay. Or, like, how I did feel about it then. I don't really know that today. Yeah. But, like, it's definitely a movie that, on all accounts, should have just floored me and should, like, currently be one of my all-time favorite movies. And it just is not at yes. all. I rewatched it uh, about like four years ago or so. It was right before it it dropped onto the Criterion Collection. Mm-hmm. I rewatched. It, I didn't even finish the movie. I actually turned it off with twenty minutes left, and I was just like, "This was not a good film." Okay. And it was just is how I feel about it now because now I look at certain things. And I love the Doors when that when I first saw that. And now I look back at that movie, I realize I don't love The Doors. I just really <laughs> like Val Kilmer. <laughs> yes. Oh, no. I remember that so, one. I don't remember the movie per se, but I remember I remember the cover. Yeah. <laughs> a great cover. 
And there are great sequences in that movie with Val Kilmer playing Jim Morrison. Mm-hmm. And there there are aspects of that movie that I I still love, but it's all performance based. It's not the movie. Yeah. And so the way I feel is if I want to see a great actor just give a great performance, I'll just buy a ticket up to New York and see a play. Yeah. I really don't need to sit through two and a half hours of somebody doing a perfect version of somebody else mm-hmm. to be like, oh, it's a great film. I don't really feel like the filmmakers always have to do everything that should be done from a storytelling point of view when they're making a biopic and they have a great actor. So that means I should never ask you about like Princess Diana or Bohemian Rhapsody. Or... The Spencer movie. And yeah, yeah. I've heard, I've heard Spencer is really good. I didn't like Bohemian Rhapsody, but Remy Malek is amazing. Yes, he's a great and actor. My general feeling about biopics is when the main people do a great job is like, they're amazing. Yeah. I don't care about the film. Yeah. Because I'm a, I'm a big fan of Kristen Stewart. So, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, and I'm, I've, from the trailers, it looks like she's amazing in that movie. And I'm pretty sure that she is. Yeah. I'm just sort of like, yeah, I don't, I don't know. There are very few biopics that, I mean, obviously there's one that's going to come up later on Mm -hmm. when we talk about certain movies, which was Elvis. And I am a huge Elvis fan. Yes, so am I. And we have Austin Butler. Yeah. Who apparently just gave a great performance. I have no doubt that he did because he has turned out to be a really great young actor. I remember when he started off on like Nickelodeon shows and he's really, really matured and come, came and he's come into his own from that perspective. The first things I saw him in was when you were watching the Carrie Diaries. Yeah. <laughs> and I saw some episodes and I was like, who is this schmuck? <laughs> and then cut to him showing up in like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood yes. and a, a few other movies recently. Uh, the Dead Don't Die in particular. Yeah. And I'm, I was kind of eating my words. Just yes. like this this kid is actually really, really great. And he is See, now a megastar. You, you did. You. <laughs> you did actually tell me. Um, but again, it's like I'm interested in seeing Elvis. I, 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 I just, I don't really care about biopics at all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've never been big on them either. So. Yeah. But I mean, you know, there, there but is. But I don't have, I don't think I have like. A really strong dislike for them. Yeah. I just I never care for them either. I didn't used to, and then as time has gone on, I'm I'm I've just soured <laughs> on on biopics in general. And I've at this point, I feel like uh, most people that know me feel like I really like hate musicals, which <laughs> is not true at no, all. I really I really really love musicals. I'm just not as well versed on the genre, but the way that I feel like most people that know me feel like I think about musicals. That's actually how I feel about biopics. Okay. I just, I, I, I okay. I yeah. I'm like, I will watch it because I like a lot of the actors who are in them. I am not watching this for the filmmaking. I am watching it for this actor <laughs> and then turning it off as soon as it hits the credits. Yes. Okay. <laughs> but anyway, um, that was our show. And I'm glad that we could round back around and kind of, give Sid and Nancy a shout out because that is a movie that does have its fans and it, it you know, I mean like it, I think rightfully so because it is a well-made film, but um, 
just for our next episode, we are going to do something a little bit different than what we've done up to this point, just because of the time of the year. Mm. On our next episode, we are going to do holiday films. Yes. Specifically, we are pulling out two movies that are holiday films for us today. Yeah. That's like staples for us. I mean, they're traditional. I mean, in the sense of it's tradition for us. Right. You know, to watch it almost every holiday. Right. So we're kind of choosing our top ones that we usually watch every holiday. Yeah. And they're, they're two movies that I don't think are canonically, in big quotes, um, holiday movies. No, I don't think it's two that people, other people would normally choose. Yeah. But it's ours. Right. And uh, I think that uh, that's going to be a lot of fun to talk about those. And then... Um, we're also going to kind of get into a little bit of other holiday movies just in in a nutshell. Just yeah. kind of what is the holiday movie to us at this point in our lives. So uh, tune in next week for that. And that's going to be uh, um, our next episode. And then after that, we're going to kind of move into a couple of other very different things that we'll talk about when we get there. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome.